Welcome to Skycast episode 50. It's our 50th oh my God. episode. <laughs> this is a podcast dedicated to all things The 100. I'm Brittany Perlman. And I'm Sarah McCabe. And today we'll be discussing season 7, episode 7, The Queen's Gambit. Ooh, 7-7. Seven, 7-7. Seven. Seven, seven. Double 7s on our 50th. our 50th. Very lucky. So what did you think about this episode? Um, I really liked this episode. Upon second viewing, I did realize that not anything really happens in this episode. Mm-hmm. It still feels like a lot of setup for like the plot that's to come until, of course, the end, guys, which... <laughs> uh, wow. wow. <laughs> Vindication! Um, but I did really like most of the character scenes. Yeah, um, yeah. It felt, it felt like similar to last episode where the plot was very much in service of like character development, which, again, like I'm okay with. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of really great... Um, character evolution um not so much resolution resolution in some places but not all yeah um but still felt like moving in the right direction um I really loved this was the episode that Lindsay Morgan directed and I thought she did a fantastic job um it was really beautifully shot really beautifully directed I feel like she definitely gave a lot of weight and um significance to let the actors really shine and you could feel their emotions Mm -hmm. um very well so i i stand up job by lindsey morgan i thought she did a great job yeah i I totally agree and you know we've we've had cast members direct in the past where um we've definitely been able to tell that they're new directors and that they're like and cusick (laughs) (laughs) um but lindsey everything she did felt very elegant yes um all of the transitions all of the camera work and um, also very much within the language the established language of the show sure yeah Uh, there were not any like extraneous flourishes there was no showing off like when Henry and Cusick with all those like weird overlays that used to (laughs) go so bad Henry what are you doing um (laughs) Yeah, so the other thing that I wanted to, to talk about up at the top is I think, not that I'm not enjoying this, I mean, like, after investing seven years in this show and, like, feeling like these characters are our family and all of this stuff, it's like, I would watch them do anything at this point. It's not that, like, I'm totally disillusioned with the show anymore. Mm-hmm. I'm very much still invested. But I do have to say that it feel like, especially with this episode, it started it started to occur to me that like, this is not the show we signed up for. This is very much a different show than where we started. And and again, I'm not like unsympathetic to the idea that the, that series can evolve over time and grow with the characters and everything. But I'm just wondering like, I don't necessarily want to say that the show has like jumped shark anywhere. But I definitely feel like we have taken, like, we took a turn after season five. And I don't necessarily know that this is the same. You know, like, I'm watching to watch it. But, like, I don't know if this is the show that I signed up for. Well, to be fair, I think Jason and the the rest of the writers tried to differentiate the show after season five. Because they had that, like, end of book one, um, which was kind of silly. Um, But I, I mean, I do agree that this is literally like a universe away from the uh you know 100 group landing on earth and battling it out with the grounders um I think for me you know as a as a super fan um 
there are some things in this season that I'm loving. There are some things that I'm not. I think I've been very open about that. But I will say, like, even with this episode and, like, the revelation that comes of it, I do feel like the show no longer is for um, the normal fan. I think totally. they, it's 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 being overly complicated. You know, you know, as much as I talk about Bill Cadigan and loved him, there is um, – very few people aside from like the super fans who will have any idea who he is right. because he was just like mentioned once or twice. Um, and so like, I keep thinking of like my mother watches this show and she's been super confused this season. And I know that she's going to get to the end of this episode and be like, eh, you know? Who? Um, but that said for me, I'm still, you know, really excited for the rest of the season. I've really liked where it's been going the last couple of episodes, um, especially with the, the Bardo stuff. Um, I'm still less invested in the sanctum parts, totally. but, um, yeah. So I, I don't know if I would say that it jumped the shark, but it has definitely evolved into a different show kind of in the same way that Lost did. And I feel like Game of Thrones by the end of the series, it was like, well, Game of Thrones just got really bad. Well, it did get really bad. But what I'm saying is, like, there were, uh, like, the the premises of this show and, like, the, the promise that it, like, you know, originally stated to the audience was, like, a very specific kind of show. But then it, like, transitioned into something else. And in the same way, that's kind of what's happening with The 100. Not I, in terms of quality, but just in terms of, like deviating from I, your original premise. I feel like Game of Thrones isn't the best example because I think it got so bad toward the end. But I think with Lost, they started out the show um, very much. It was not a uh, genre show. In yeah. fact, they had to pull back on the genre stuff that they were doing all in the first season. And it wasn't until um, really season three that they were allowed to really like kind of pick up on the on the genre. And so you see Lost transition from this like almost character story about you know a bunch of people lost on an island yeah. to at the end it's like totally sci-fi like yeah. heavily spiritual there's like time travel there's it's just like it, it it very much changes and for me I mean I know a lot of people don't love how Lost ended for me I, I do find it satisfying but I will also recognize that the show changed greatly and luckily I'm the kind of viewer who likes both kinds yeah but I think that you know just like with the hundred there are viewers who will only want one kind or the other and the hundred has definitely evolved throughout the spectrum so. totally I think that's a really good point and a great comparison um I'm not as hard much of a diehard lost fan as you I mean, I, I'm not I'm not a diehard well, but like fan, I only but... I've only seen it once mm -hmm. um and I definitely remember there was like a turning point for me watching it back way way back when I was a wee teen um of being like what the hell is this <laughs> this yeah. is not what I signed up for so uh I totally agree um but we're gonna get into all of this and more in our recap before we do please go and take this moment to go rate and review us on iTunes it helps other fans of the 100 find us uh we appreciate it so much so thank you thank you and with that let's jump in let's do it so Gabriel's taken to the stone room on Bardo, where Anders let him say goodbye to Orlando's body and then asks Gabriel to join the Disciples' cipher team and help them unlock the secrets of the Anomaly Stone. Gabriel agrees, if reluctantly. Yeah, so I think the most important thing to talk about in this scene is how good Gabriel looks in his t-shirt. <laughs> he looks really good. He it, He's working it. Yeah, not gonna that t-shirt is now my favorite character. So. <laughs> Do you like it better than his uh, tank no. top? No. Okay. Tank top is my favorite. <laughs> T-shirt's your second favorite. T-shirt is my second favorite. Anything that shows off his guns, I'm, I'm here for. <laughs> um, but in all seriousness, you know, we see here 
that quote unquote Orlando. I mean, we're we're made to believe it's Orlando. I think it probably is Orlando. Yeah, I think it is. His body's laid out, um, and. I guess that means all of the Orlando theorizing was for nothing, which is fine because I didn't necessarily prescribe to it, so I don't yeah, feel too sad. I didn't. I didn't think that there was really anything more to the Orlando story other than what we already got. Um, but I'm sorry for all the fans and the work that people did who thought there was more. Um, but yeah, I mean, we didn't see his face, so there's always possibility. But I also wanted to note that one of our fans that I had asked about. You know, do they like just go to Nakara, drop the bodies off and then have to make the trek all the way to the Anomaly Stone? And one of our fans was like, I just kind of assumed they just sent them off through the Anomaly. And I was like, I don't know. That seems kind of disrespectful, which I still feel like it is. <laughs> but that's exactly, um, what that's, happens. that's exactly what happens. They literally just drop the bodies on Nakara. Yeah, good on you. It's like raining bodies on, there, on yeah, that geez. planet. Um, but yeah, uh, so that is how they... Um, get rid of their dead and I also just wanted to note that I found it interesting that they send their bodies off to Nakara if that is like the show's parallel for hell yeah I mean Anders said that he didn't you know they didn't believe in heaven or hell but it was just it was kind of a it was a choice that they made that I'm, I'm still not sure that it lines up for me totally I agree with you and I'm also still curious like why are you sending your dead to a planet that eats bodies yeah like what's the point right. can't you just not like burn, bear, burn, burn them, them or bear like, like you know why do you need to send the bodies to an, a, a, a new planet a, a bioorganic <laughs> conscious planet like <laughs> what why i don't know um taking a step back here a little bit i just wanted to note that like this orlando or, or um anders showing gabriel gabriel orlando's body was such a cheap and emotionally manipulative trick. I mean, it was it was very, very obvious that he was trying to emotionally manipulate Gabriel and also be like, hey, this guy's dead. See what could happen to you? Your, your body's going to get shipped off to Nagara. Um, and it just, again, reinforces that the disciples will literally use any tactic to get what they want. I mean, we've already seen them use torture in a variety of ways, but they're also not above emotional manipulation as well. Sure. I mean, in this, I feel like it's kind of justified because you guys did leave Orlando there to die. So. Totally, totally. But, I mean, there's a reason why they're doing it with Gabriel is not the others. You know, they need something from him right now. Well, sure. And Gabriel was the one who was, it seemed, the most emotionally conflicted about leaving Orlando yeah. because Gabriel had less to gain by, you know, going to Bardo yeah. than Hope and uh, Echo did. But... I still am like, yeah, look what you guys did. Yeah, no, you, you kind of sucked. You need I mean, to reckon with it. The, the, the thing is, is I, I still feel like Echo is probably right and that Orlando would have turned on them if it came to a choice between them and his people. Well, especially after, you know, there have been so many allusions to the fact that, like, Orlando kept a lot of stuff from them. Yeah. Um, I, like, every episode that we've been on Bardo since his death has been reinforcing this idea that, like, he was not upfront with you. Yeah. You know, like, he kept a lot from them. And so I'm inclined to agree. Don't like it. I didn't like the tactics necessarily. Like Dioza said, <laughs> if you do the right thing the wrong way, it's not the right thing. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, yeah, I, I don't disagree that I do think he would have been very conflicted and ultimately would have sided with his people. Yeah. 
Um, I also wanted to note that Anders mentions that the disciples believe in transcendence through the stone and that winning the last war brings about the final evolution of the species. Um, so this was a really interesting statement for me, and I think it, it opened up a lot of possibilities about what the disciples are ultimately trying to achieve. Yeah. Um, I guess my first note that I wanted to talk about is the transcendence through the stone. And the idea of transcendence, for me, it really is, it seems like it's all about like ascending to a new level of consciousness. Yes, I would agree. Um, and the only thing again I think of, and I know this was, again, a movie that was very influential in this season, um, is uh, Interstellar. Interstellar, where we see, again, spoilers for Interstellar, sorry guys, <laughs> but at the end, the main character meets humanity that has evolved like you know thousands of years in the future they've evolved beyond the need for physical bodies and they're kind of like occupying the fourth dimension of time and so they are able to interact with like a past uh, version of humanity because they need him to do something specific in order to allow them to evolve to this point Mm -hmm. um and so it does seem to me like that could be some sort of like transcendence that the Bardoans or the disciples are trying to achieve, like, you know, beyond the need for like death and dying. And I think to, to get beyond the need for death and dying, you need either one of two things. You need a digital afterlife yeah, or you need to like transcend beyond the need for bodies. Yeah. And like what we were talking about offline um, where I had been like, well, I definitely think that like transcendence means like this like digital like city of lightscape. Mm-hmm. And then you made the really good point, which is. Yeah. The only th- I, I like the idea of the digital afterlife just because the show has discussed it before. And I really do think again that um, we're going to see more about Ali and Becca and their like ultimate plans and how those are going to tie into Cadigan's plans. Mm-hmm. But that said, I feel like the the main conflict in the show and, and what the disciples want needs to be something that the show hasn't already done before. Yeah, I agree. And the City of Light, while it wasn't necessarily an afterlife, um, it was, you know, essentially like a digital uh, utopia where you could live forever. Um and so, like, I, I'll feel a little weird if that's what their ultimate goal is, especially because, number one, we've already done that in season three, like, in a big way. And then, number two, Russell and, like, the other primes already exist with their mind drives and are able to, like, continue to live on through different bodies. Yeah. Um, so I, I just hope that the, the Disciples' ultimate goal is something that is new to us so we can kind of explore a new thing in this last season because we've already seen a lot of parallels to earlier seasons, and I think we really need something fresh to end it off on. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, I'm still left with the major question, which of course they haven't answered yet, but why is Clark the key? Why? It has to do with Allie, right? It like has to do with Allie. Possibly. I mean, like who the hell knows? And like the key and the fact that Clark is the only one who's talked to Allie with her full like faculties, you know, I think I, I could be wrong, but that I'm pretty sure that's, that's true. You mean Allie or Becca? Allie. Because Clark went into the City of Light oh, yes, and like yes, was yes. able to talk to Allie directly. Whereas like all of the other characters who might have spoken to Allie they were, were doing like so chips. under the yeah. influence of the chip. Totally. Um, and so like, and I don't know, I'm still just like, are they just after the flame? And if so, like you got the wrong girl. And surely they would know that by now. Yeah, you would think that like with all the information they've collected through all of their various... I mean, Gabriel alone, I yeah, feel, would have, I, yeah, could have cleared I that up. I totally agree. So I have no idea. I have no idea. <laughs> oh, boy. Um, we do get the confirmation here that the Disciples have been on Bardo for a thousand years. Which really fucking long time. I guess tracks, like, just given the, the time differentiation between Earth and, and Sanctum and, and uh, how and advanced their technology Bardo. is. 
Well, I think we are led to believe from earlier episodes that a lot of this technology is from um, the, you know, quote unquote, original Bardoans, whoever they were, the extinct Bardoans. But I I did want to note that a thousand years is a really long time. It's a really long time. Like, it's like the difference between 1000 AD and 2000 AD. That's a long stretch of time. And I say it's a thousand years. It's a thousand years. (laughs) I would, in fact, say that. And so it does feel a little odd to me that they've had this same like kind of culture and I'm sure it's evolved a little bit because like it clearly they're different now than the second dawn people were you know a thousand years ago but I I feel like the fact that they like still worship this shepherd and they're still after the same goal after a thousand years is a little ridiculous I also think it's ridiculous (laughs) I mean like no culture it's culture is permeable right and just by nature of like reproduction like they would have had so many new like you know populations like growing and growing Mm -hmm. exponentially that I just like have a really hard time that they could maintain this sort of strict religion religion and and, like hierarchy goal yeah it's it's very strange yeah um but I will say that this episode at least we get to see Gabriel be with his true love so goad forever oh goad (laughs) finally reunited (laughs) so Amori wakes up Murphy to go bring Shadeheda his food Amori also asks him to attend the reunification ceremony she's planning elsewhere Jackson and Maddie talk about the panic attack she had in the previous episode and we see that Jackson is also helping Amori match the DNA of the children of Gabriel with their parents although he questions why Amori is doing this to begin with Murphy takes Shade Russell his breakfast, and Shade Russell tells Murphy that something bad is about to happen and invites Murphy to beat him at chess if he wants to find out what it is. Mm. Um, so first off, I want to talk about you know, the first part of this scene, which is where um, Amori and Murphy are talking in their bedroom. And it does seem very clear that Amori is becoming very comfortable with the power that she has. Totally. Um, which, which I like. I love seeing. But the show keeps calling it out, which makes me worry that it's going to take a darker turn. And to be quite honest, I'm just not here for that storyline. No, not at all. I, I I think that Amori deserves this. I, I mean, I, I do think maybe Amori is getting a little too deep into the idea of the primes. But um, I think overall her her goals are pure and she does want to help the people. And obviously at some point they're going to find out she's not a prime and that's going to be an issue. But I, I just don't, I don't want her to, I don't want her to become like, power hungry because I don't think that is her no I agree and I think that like any foibles or um, missteps that she's taking is very much an indication of someone who's very new to leadership yeah um and like our characters should be allowed to mistrial and um you know test out these new kinds of dynamics and these new situations um without betraying their ultimately who they are as characters Mm -hmm. um and I'm enjoying it and i truly feel like Amori deserves this yeah. you know, role you know she's taken to it very well she's very good at it I mean she's such a powerful woman yeah and she's not been given the chance to be that powerful woman in the last six, six seasons of the show that she's been in it so yeah. I mean Murphy tells Amori like he's and he's kind of like you know teasing her about it he's like oh you enjoy this you like being worshipped but I really truly feel like it's not that specifically I think there is an aspect of that but I think it's more that Amori enjoys having a purpose she enjoys having a job and a place to fit in and contribute in a society um which is something that she's never had growing up 
Well, I also think that she um, enjoys being respected. Totally. In a way that she never was back on Earth, you Absolutely. A hundred percent. And so, and I'm in full agreement with that. Like, I, I completely understand that feeling. I understand where she's coming from. I think it's totally valid. And I I want the show to support it as much as I do. Yeah. I, but we'll see. Um, I, I do want to note here Amori isn't, or she says at least she isn't worried about her friends. And so I'm kind of wondering, like, is she really not worried or is she trying to hide that worry by busying herself in things like the reunification ceremony? Um, I don't know. I, I don't think it's not that she's worried. I just think she has a lot of faith in her friends mm-hmm. and their ability to handle themselves. Like she says, like they've been in really tough scrapes before. She's seen them pull off a lot of amazing feats. So I think she feels like they got each other's backs. See, like, I believe that, but at the same time, I'm like, you're literally against a very, you know, advanced group of people from another planet. Um, I'd be a little worried. I'm <laughs> and sure I'd be she worried, too, a little worried that they hadn't come back yet. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I don't know. I, I mean, I think she's also of the mind of, like, just because they're missing, it's like, things got to keep going. Well, things sure. Gotta keep and that's why I almost feel like she's displacing that worry a yeah. little bit by being so, like, gung-ho to do the reunification ceremony, like, right now, you know? Yeah. I like that interpretation. I don't know if that's what the show is saying, but I like it. Um, I do also do appreciate that, finally, Amori brings up the demons from Murphy's past last season, and she reassures him that he's not going to hell, but she inverts the saying that we all know, which is, the road to hell is paved with good intentions, and she says it as the road out of hell is paved with good deeds, and I really like that inversion. I think it's cute in the idea of, like, this this phrase may, may have evolved, like, in the future yeah. a little bit. And I also just like this idea of, like, that's true. Like, even if you've made mistakes, even if you are, you know, it, you're, you're, even if your uh, slate is very much marked with bad choices, like, you can always start making better choices mm-hmm. now. You know, you can always, you know, level the playing field and even your scorecard. Yeah. Um, And I, I really appreciate that. And, again, I just like that, that, that they brought up this idea that Murphy is grappling with from last season. Yeah, I'm glad they didn't let that go, especially because that didn't ever feel like it was resolved. Um, And I do, at the same time, worry that this is some foreshadowing that Murphy's going to die. I agree. Um, I I mean, like, I've I've thought that this whole season. I still think he's going to die at the end. Uh, But before that, I think he hopefully will kind of turn his life around and actually try to be good, be the hero, you know? Yeah, and especially with all this, like, hero talk, which we'll get into later with Shade Russell, um... It just makes me think that, like, he'll probably, like, die a hero, you know? Yeah, agreed. Uh, and I just wanted to note, too, before this scene is over, that Murphy, uh, as Amori said, has worshipped Amori for years, and so have we. Same. Like, buddy, absolutely. Like, she truly is a goddess. Like, you know, she's a goddess. She's and so great. She's amazing, and Luisa's an amazing actress, and I am just really glad that Amori's getting her own storyline. Yep. Could not have said it better myself. Uh, so we move on to the Jackson Maddie scene. And my first thought is, when did Jackson get his therapy license? Oh, I was, I had, I wrote the same thing. I was like, oh, look at you taking over Dioza. I was like, oh, you had the yeah. Inya. Did you train under Dioza? Yeah, like, <laughs> I, I missed it. Like, maybe while everyone else was asleep, Dioza and Jackson would just wake up from cryo and have some, like, she's like, classes. <laughs> she was like, in case I have to go <laughs> for a prolonged period of time, these guys need a therapist. You're my only hope. <laughs> 
Um, but like in all seriousness here, it really, really feels like they didn't know what to do with Jackson this season. And so they've just like had him be all over the place. Um, this therapy stuff is... Uh, it doesn't quite click for me. No, I don't. I like not that I don't feel like Jackson is a really empathetic character, but I just feel like his skill set as a doctor is pretty different from what the skill set of a therapist is. And so I, I just think he's, I don't know, a little too good at this. Well, also, you know, especially since like from what we've seen Jackson this in, season, this season yeah. he's been emotionally all over the place and very... Um, conflicted himself uh-huh. and so I just don't believe that he's in a place right now to be counseling others when he himself could use with some counseling absolutely yeah I agree um we also see here that Maddie has drawn a group of people engulfed in a bright light which I think we're all to assume means they're either entering the anomaly stone or exiting the anomaly stone in some way which also means that perhaps Becca Saul Cadian and his group leave But the one thing that's kind of coming up against that for me is the fact that Becca, in the scene we saw of her getting burned at the stake, um, is yelling out at Cadigan to stop this. And the only thing I can think of is, one, Cadigan either burns Becca at the stake before his group leaves, Mm -hmm. or two, we know um, in the prequel that there are two kids who are Cadigan's children yeah. um, that are the main characters. And it is possible that one of them, I think probably the boy, because it seems like the girl is much more in the like um, do-gooder kind of, you know, sense. So I, I don't know much about the, the boy, but it's like possibly could be him who is burning Becca at the stake. It's, it's possible. Or, or it's also possible that I mean, the person who is viewing this anomaly stone um, situation that Maddie's like recalling uh, was like the second commander. To right. Take that's what I was just going to yeah. say. It's like it very much could be a combi- combination of various commanders mm-hmm. memories. Um, and I also I do really appreciate Jackson telling Maddie in this scene that it wasn't right that she was pressured into taking the flame. Yeah. And that that was all put on her shoulders at such a young age. Um, I do, you know, like that was a very conflicting um, scene for us emotionally, a yeah. scene slash episode for us emotionally, um, for the fandom, honestly, emotionally, um, that I'm still not sure that I've reconciled with. Um, I don't know if there were any other options. As Jackson says, you know, just because something might be true, like just because Bellamy's statement was true doesn't make it right. Totally. Um, But I don't know what to do with that information. As like, does that mean that there was another option or does that really mean that like this was still the wrong thing, although the other option is just Clark dying, you know, like. Right. Well, I think it's, it's, it's a little bit of both. And I, I don't think you have to square this doesn't have to square up perfectly right I mean like it's complicated and messy and life and humans are complicated Mm -hmm. and messy and like that's what Jackson is trying to say here is like all of these things can be true and that still sucks for you and that's okay um I you know despite the fact that I don't know where Jackson got his therapist license (laughs) he's very good with Maddie and you know, even though this conversation kind of seems like it came out of the blue, I think it works really well for both of them. And I'm really glad that we got this scene with Maddie specifically. I have been feeling like I don't really know where we're going with Maddie this season, yeah. but I really liked this scene. And Lola Flannery is such a great actor. I mean, she really sells Maddie's trauma and the pent up anxiety here. I mean, like, 
when Jackson's telling her that Bella, even you know, it wasn't right what Bellamy did, like her eyes just like well up with tears, and you like really feel it, like uh-huh. you know, she's just feeling. There's so many feelings, like just in her little body. Um, she's so great, and I I really liked this scene. Yeah, like as we've mentioned before, um, I really think the early episodes of this season did a disservice to Maddie, um, because they just didn't focus on any of this trauma at all, and so it was kind of almost a surprise to me to see this later on how she was kind of functioning with things. Yeah. But at the same time, I really do like how they've handled Maddie's character in the last two episodes. Yeah. Um, and it does seem like this is an arc that's going to kind of continue out yeah I, the season. you know it's too is too early to call a trend but i do like tracking from last episode to this episode that feels very um mm-hmm. congruous to me and i i like it yeah uh, I do want to say that it was a bit of an odd choice that Jackson calls out the word crazy for kind of being ableist yeah. and not being something that the medical community likes to use, but then uses it in jest a little later on in the scene. And like, again, I know it's supposed to be a joke, but the whole idea of him calling out that that's not a word they like to use um, feels very serious. And it's true. Like it's, you know, that's, that's not a word that um, we really should be using. And I've definitely tried to like, cut that out of my uh, vocabulary even though it's really hard um, when it's something that you're you know used to saying your whole life totally. so I just I don't, the, the way that this whole scene worked around that word crazy um, it was just it, it was kind of like they took a step forward and then two steps back totally yeah it was it was awkward I think they were trying to like kind of ride two horses at once and be like we're progressive but also we're still joking yeah and, like it's fine yeah <laughs> And uh, finally, I'm just really glad that Maddie finally got to play soccer with the other kids because, you know, we have definitely called out the fact that Maddie never got to be a kid in the sense that she was really young when the apocalypse happened um, and, you know, her and Clark were alone. But even before that, it sounds like she was like never allowed to do anything. Yeah, no, her whole life has just been marked by fear mm-hmm. um, and tragedy. And that's really, really sad. Yeah. And so like the the last thing she asks of him and she's like is it okay if I play soccer like it's kind of meant in jest but it's actually a real question and that's so sad it is so sad and I'm just so happy for her that she has friends and she's allowed to be a kid and it's like the facade of her even being Hedda anymore is completely gone and like she's just Maddie now yeah and that's great Mm mm-hmm um, so switching gears here, uh, Jackson goes and talks to Amori, and like he continues to like try and shrink Amori as well. And I'm just like, Jackson, you're not a shrink. Um, <laughs> and Amori calls him out on it. <laughs> and well, yeah, it's a little bit more um, offensive with Amori, just because like Amori knows herself, you know? Totally, exactly. That's exactly what I was just gonna say. I feel like this whole conversation was unnecessary and a little bit of overkill, like. As an audience, I don't need Jackson to, like, spell out the connection between Amori's past and her desire to reunite the Knowles, like, with their families. Like, I feel like the writers should have trusted the audience to make that connection on their own. Well, they didn't even need to trust the audience because they literally have Amori spell it out to Nelson later. Totally. (laughs) It was, like, so overkill. And, like... And very condescending, in my opinion. It was super condescending. But, like, Amori claps back so well, you know? She's... She says, she's like, yeah, I know exactly what I'm doing. And it's like, if I can heal myself and them at the same time, like, why is that a bad thing? And it's like, she's so self-aware. She knows exactly what she's about. I do, I think this is an interesting question. And I like that they asked it, you know. It's like, is this a bad thing? And I think 
the only way that you can sort of I, I mean I think the as you said earlier her intentions are pure I mm-hmm. think this comes from a really good well-meaning place I think that they're her desire to do good is blinding her to the some of the really dangers and the realities of the situation here. Um, and it's basically the ba- the way that this could be bad is that your expectations are not set in realistic parameters. And so right. that's where you get into like some sticky territory because to in order to fulfill this desire, you are literally putting a lot of people in danger. Yeah, I think that Amori is relying a little too hard on her power as a prime, quote-unquote, to, like, be able to pull this off. Totally. When it's true that the the reality of the situation is, as Raven mentioned back in episode three or two or one, yeah. uh, that the place is a powder keg right now. Right. That we're all just, like, one, you know, iota away from all-out chaos. <laughs> so, And there are a lot of, like... There are a lot of things happening here, right? It's like you focusing on one aspect of one part of this culture with one like minority group. It's like steeped in a religion that is very controlling and very, very, um, you know, dark. Mm -hmm. You know, it's hubris to think that you can dismantle that with one ceremony. And that's. That's a flaw. Yeah, that's a misstep. That right. Amori, you know, and trying to do good. That's what I'm saying. As like a character, I like th- I like. She's testing her limits, mm-hmm. and I like it. That's totally fine. I'm t- absolutely okay with this plot line for her. I think it's great. I think like, if you're gonna give your character agency, that agency needs to come with bad decisions too. Absolutely. We've seen every single one of our characters who've been in power make bad decisions at one point 100%. or another. Hundred percent. That's good character treatment. Mm-hmm. So I'm okay with this. Yeah, I, I think I it's definitely fantastic am as well. Um. And yeah, so I, I, I personally, and I mentioned this earlier, I don't think that I love the way the show is treating Amore's relationship with power and her drive to help the faithful and the children of Gabriel. I I really just see this going in a direction that I dislike, um, but I personally feel like there is there could be a way to do this plot line um, that doesn't end up with Amore, like, power-hungry, like, needing to be worshipped. It's just about a person who's kind of coming into their own um, as a leader. And growing. And yep. growing. So Totally. 100% agree. Switching gears here a little bit um, over to Murphy and meeting with Shade Hedda or Shade Russell. Uh, <laughs> he passes Alyssa again, who like hands him the tray of food and like sneaky Alyssa. Still such a bamf, you know, always underestimated. It's she's, like, I hate her <laughs> because she's like perpetuating this thanksome storyline that I don't want. No, she's. But like as a as a as a woman, she's like very in control of what she believes, and she's doing stuff about and it. And like very capable. Yeah. And like you can see the way they, they that Lindsay Morgan shot this. It was like she was like all like very sycophant, like very passive, very um sweet to Murphy. She's like, oh, do you want me to do it? And he's like, no, 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 no. And she's like, it's got this like smile, doughy eyes at him. And then the second that he passes her, the camera stays on her face, and it just turns into this like evil grin. Well, I mean, and I don't, it, I don't know if I'd say evil but her uh, uh, sly. sly yeah very um my little question here is does Alyssa know that Murphy isn't actually a prime like what has Shade Russell told her if anything yeah it's a great question I don't know because um, again I'm I just like the idea that they worship these primes as gods but like some primes get worshipped more than others is just very confusing well, it to me it seems like there's like a 
hierarchy of the god hierarchy sure. right it's like russell is the top of the mm-hmm. food chain so like he his opinions his his rules supersede everyone else's and it sounds a little bit like daniel is like a little bit higher in the hierarchy than even kaylee is because yeah. of what we're gonna see later yeah um so murphy goes in to see shade russell um and he's clearly very scared of him which almost to me seems out of place um just in the fact that like Murphy's been around a lot of villains and he always kind of tends to hold his own, but like his fear here seems almost a little extreme in the face of like what he's faced before, you know? Totally. I think part of it is because of like what Indra has told him and like her Indra is such a badass and like, you know, a warrior in in her own right. And such an amazing person. The fact that she is so afraid of him probably has like leaked into what Murphy thinks about him too. That's a really good point. Um, because again, like I think if Murphy met this guy on the street with no context, he would treat him like a cartoon like he does with everybody. Yeah. But it's like the context of what Indra has told him that is like coloring how he thinks about him. Okay. I really like that interpretation. Yeah. Um, and we know, we know that Shade Russell is an amazing strategist. Like we've seen over the past few episodes, like how he manipulates everyone around him, how he pulls the strings, how he puts things into place in prison. (laughs) (laughs) But this, um, this scene specifically really proves that he is a force to be reckoned with. And we don't fully understand the scope of what he's doing here until the end of the episode. But it's worth noting that, like, he reads this note that Alyssa has hidden in his cookie, which, like, what a shame because that cookie looked delicious. Yeah. I was like, don't waste the cookie. Don't crumble don't the cookie. Don't crumble the cookie, man. <laughs> Just like, split it in half and eat the cookie. Um, and by the time he ends up reading the note, which tells him about the reunification ceremony, and the fact that Murphy is now sitting in his cell, it takes him about 1.5 seconds to formulate this plan in order to stall Murphy, who he knows is pretending to be Daniel Prime. He comes up with this plan in no time flat. Well, yeah, and what was interesting, too, is, and this is probably just a plot contrivance, but I was like, why is Shade Russell reading the note now when Murphy's still in there? Like, why wouldn't he just wait until Murphy leaves? Totally. Um, But obviously he's, I mean, for one, number one, it's a plot contrivance. But number two, Shade Russell is just so confident in his abilities that, like, he knows he can get this past Murphy. Totally. Exactly. He, everything he does is, is with a purpose and intentional and, like, He's confident, but he has, he's rightly, rightly confident, you know? Yeah. He's really, really good at this. I also think it's interesting that Shade Russell is the only other person besides Amori, I think, who calls Murphy John, which is like, it feels like, it's like, just like just such a more intimate and like personal, um, thing. Well, um, the only one alive because we've had other villains call him John in the past, like Josephine. Yeah. Um, and in some ways, Jaha called yeah, him John. No, I was and I think Jaha, Jaha was a bit of a villain in season two. At least an antagonist. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Minimum. Um, and so it's definitely funny. And I'll just bring, I had a point later that I was going to talk about, but Russell, Shade Russell likes Murphy, you know, mm-hmm. as, as to an extent. And I think it's just really funny slash interesting that the villains tend to like Murphy always um and whether that might bother Murphy sometimes yeah I don't know I mean it's so hard to tell with Murphy on what he's feeling on any given day sometimes I think he resents the idea of like where his spot in life is you know he's always sort of in the gray always on both sides a little bit and then Mm -hmm. other days he seems to fully embrace it so I really think it just depends on on John or Murphy who you're talking to (laughs) 
Um, I do really, really, really love the idea here that Shade Russell proposes that Murphy wants to be a hero deep down. Yeah. Um, and for me, I'm kind of questioning, like, is this a new desire for him so that he doesn't go to hell? Or do we think that he's always kind of wished that he could be different from, like, the cockroach that he is? Like, do you know, has he, like, watched Bellamy and watched Clark and watched Raven and all of these friends that he has who are in their own ways heroes and kind of you know wish that he could be like that too even though he knows that he isn't yeah I think it's a really good question and I also wrote down something very similar to this because I think this a proposition that Russell Shade Russell suggests that he like secretly wants to be a hero is something that we've grappled with the entire show like what you're talking about and it's like I don't necessarily know if he has always wanted to be a hero I think what's more likely and what I've seen in in the Murphy character in this show is that he resents the circumstances in which you were born that forced him to be a cockroach yeah. in the first place and it's like all of these people who are confident in their abilities and who have experienced love and friendship and um uh, you know camaraderie with other people and and support have manifested this ability to lead mm-hmm. um in a way that is been kind of um, kept from Murphy just because of how he was raised, who raised him, and the circumstances in which he was born it has made him into a survivor and has forced him to be a cockroach. And, like, that's the shape that he is now. And it's, like, his form, he's, like, I think he a lot of times thinks that, like, there's nothing to be done about it now. Mm-hmm. But I think he really resents the fact that other people were given opportunities that he wasn't, which allows them to be better people. I love that interpretation. Yeah. Yeah. I'm so, very much in agreement with that. So I, I don't know if it's about so much being a hero. I think it's a lot about where he fits in society and how and, and, and the opportunities that people yeah. have other than, other than him. Um, and I also got the scene was so good, guys. I think we should have just mentioned that at the top. Every scene with Russell and Shade Russell and Murphy was fantastic. I mean, both of them are incredible actors, and they play off of each other really well. We were watching a behind-the-scenes feature um, where Lindsay Morgan was talking about um, shooting, and she said these were her favorite scenes to film because it was just so um, magnetic to watch these two mm-hmm. guys go up against each other. And it's obvious that they are so great, and both of them can hold their own against each other so well. Um, well... Shade had a to a more no, no. extent than Murphy. I'm talking oh, the about actors? Jared Bourne. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Harmon. <laughs> um, but also, yes, Shade Hedda and, and um, Murphy. And uh, I don't remember what I was going to say about that other than they're so, so fantastic <laughs> together. But my earlier point was going to be that Shade, had, Shade Russell tells Murphy, um, it's all about perspective, right? And I really just feel like, isn't this just what the whole show is about? It's about perspective. Well, yeah, there's a line later, which I forgot to call out. I hope I'm not taking your point. Um, but Russell's talking about the game of chess and how it's about, like, strategy and choices. Yeah. And, you know, I was going to talk about how much that line just really lines up with the show. Yeah. Um, with the entire concept of the show is that, like, it's just a series of choices, good or bad, that get you to an end point, you know? And, right. And, 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 and you are constantly assessing risk. Uh-huh. And what you're willing to risk and what you're not willing to risk. Yeah. And that is the game of chess. And chess is such a great allegory for life. Mm-hmm. Um, and especially for this show. And this show. Yeah. It's excellent. I will admit that I'm a bit surprised that Murphy knows how to play chess. Um, but even if he, you know, somehow learned on the arc... Uh, or even learned when they were in space um, for those last six years. I do feel like it's a really unfair game, and Shade Russell knows that, because, like, this boy is obsessed with chess. He's just, like, 
has a chessboard constantly, even in his own mind space. <laughs> like, like you know, it's just a little unfair. Oh, it's totally unfair. Even if Murphy was, like, good at chess, even if he had all this time to practice and everything, like, Shade Russell is, is like, Bobby Fischer. You I know, mean, Shade Russell plays to win. Right. <laughs> he's, he's a master. Although in this in this episode, Shade Russell doesn't play to win. He plays to no, stall. No, to stall. <laughs> but then again, like, you have to be good enough to make it yeah. possibly you know believable that you're playing to win when you're not actually playing to win yeah that's like a that's like extra that's a level up above <laughs> like normal mastery yeah um speaking of this chess game murphy opens with the opens the game with the titular the queen's gambit move um and i spent a really long time trying to parse out what the metaphorical connection in this episode is beyond the literal sense of the queen's gambit in this chess play in this chess game and i you know so to help to help clarify why i'm having such a hard time the 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 queen's gambit opens with an offer to sacrifice material um in in the queen's gambit the white queen offers a pawn in exchange for better control of the center of the board which implies that like somebody has to sacrifice something personal and and important to them in order to gain better control of the situation and I just don't I really don't see a connection in like what's happening in this episode like is Murphy what's Murphy sacrificing what's Shade Russell's sacrifice I don't feel like anybody's sacrificing anything in order to gain control I think there are a lot of missteps I think there are a lot of things happen that are unfortunate but I don't necessarily know if any of them is like a conscious choice of sacrifice and so I'm just having a hard time making this connection and I would like to be like to give you guys something you know I, I feel like that's my job as like when I like define what the um the importance of the title is but like I'm having a really hard time with this one <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, you and I talked a lot about this offline because we were trying to really find that connection and delve deep into this episode, especially because the title is so um, clear and significant as to like how that could play into yeah. group dynamics. Um, and we didn't end up seeing any overt representation of that. So that's why it's a little bit confusing. I, I have, well, I was going to say before you go into that, because I do like a lot of the theories you came up with. I also think it's exceptionally confusing because we established last episode that the queen in the show yeah. is Clark. Yeah. And like nothing that happens in this episode is about Clark. So mm-hmm. go ahead. Um, so I have two ideas. The first one is that the the title usually has a literal and metaphorical interpretation in the show. Yeah. And so in the Murphy Russell scene, the Murphy Shade Russell scene, that could be like the literal interpretation of the Obviously. Queen's Gambit. Yeah. Whereas um, we could consider theoretically Echo to be the Queen um, later on in the episode. And she kind of sacrifices her anger and her need for revenge um, on the Bardoans, at least in the in the short-term period mm-hmm. um, in order to kind of train with them and gain more understanding of her enemies that she might be able to take them down later. That's a very loose interpretation. Yeah. And I don't know if the episode really satisfies that. I don't think I, – and I also feel like because the, like, literal manifestation of the title is so centered on Murphy and Shade Russell, I think it's a bit of a stretch to then apply that theme to the Bardo group. Well, I think that's, 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 I mean, not, not it's not, it's not uh, out of the blue. That would not be very, out of the question. That would be very common for the show. I just, 
But I just don't – I just also feel like what we were talking about offline too is like Echo at this point has nothing to lose. I think she's like hit complete rock bottom, which again we'll talk about later. But I – and again, it's this is more satisfying, like a long term strategy for Echo. Um, and I just don't know if that makes total sense to me. I also just don't think of Echo as the queen. I just don't, I don't think of Echo you know? as the queen. But I mean, I think again, that was a loose interpretation. My second interpretation um, is that Murphy or another or, or like Mori is Murphy's queen sure. in this situation, and I think and, that's very very true. And he you know, sacrifices um, his time and his promise to Amori to, like, attend the reunification ceremony um, in order to gain more information from Russell that he can later use to help Amori. Mm -hmm. Um, But the gambit ultimately fails, and he fails at it. Yeah, Um, just like he fails at chess. Right, so, like, the idea that, like, the Queen's Gambit is um, metaphorical for, like, Murphy's devotion to Amori and in this situation he just loses the game yeah um I like that interpretation a lot I think that's probably what's happening here and I think that's probably what the writers intended I wish it was maybe portrayed a little better I just think that like this this title and this setup had is so rich and they had so much potential I just feel like they did not live up to this as well as they could have. I absolutely agree, and I, I am a little disappointed um, in the sense that I expected more of, like, a sacrifice and more of, um. I mean, again, I'm always saying, like, I prefer character over plot, and that's true, but I, I, I expected more of a plot move for the Queen's Gambit, um, a significant plot move that would, like, propel us into the future. Well, especially because sacrifice implies, um, like, active an active choice yeah and like everything that Murphy did up until this point was a very passive choice you know he was like he wasn't like actively choosing to disappoint Amori that was Mm -hmm. a byproduct of the choices to help her and so I feel like that doesn't quite line up with a sacrifice to me because that is a very conscious decision to be like I'm gonna let this go yeah um I, I do think you're ultimately right I just don't I don't love it yeah I I also don't love it uh, speaking of things I don't love. <laughs> <laughs> so we get a flashback through Echo's eyes about the first time she and Bellamy kissed. Then in their cell on Bardo, Octavia comforts Echo against Echo's will about Bellamy's death. In another cell, Hope and Dioza argue about Hope coming to rescue her mother, given that now they're both trapped. Mm-hmm. Um, so the Echo Bellamy flashback, I was kind of joking. Like, I don't think it was the worst thing ever. No. Um, I do think it was about three years too late. Totally. And this is context that I think would have been really helpful to have in season five. Oh um, my God, yes. Rather than just being told they were a couple to get to like see more than this, like a few flashbacks about how they came to like grow closer as friends and then ultimately um, a romantic couple. Exactly. Because like as much as we joke about how much we ship Bellark, you know, Again, I don't want I don't want to hate things on this show and I don't hate Becco. Yeah. You know, in a lot of ways I think they work really well, but again, it's very hard as a viewer to invest in a relationship when you don't see how the relationship happens. When you're just told that it takes place but you don't actually see it for yourselves, it's it's impossible to invest in it. And so the whole time Bellamy and Echo were together, it just felt like we were treading water. And we knew it wasn't going to last because we didn't spend any time investing in how they got together in the first place. Yeah, and while I believe the show could have made a really interesting relationship out of Bellamy and Echo, um, because I think that the actors had a lot of chemistry before they got together. Yeah. Once they had the two get together, they had so little um, 
chemistry in the way that they worked together and the way that they like communicated it just always felt super off again that like echo was bellamy's second not bellamy's girlfriend totally um and so there was just a lot that i've been missing about this relationship for the last three seasons and this doesn't necessarily help me now at this stage this late in the game um but it would have been good to have earlier and i think this could have been one kind of scene that would have helped me get more on board with their relationship but yeah. again i just think that they've made misstep after misstep after misstep in the ways that they've written the becco uh situation totally and you know it's not just because i don't i mean i i could have shipped them again but i don't um but this scene like the flirting in this flashback is so bad like oh it God. is cringeworthy it's it was so bad awful <laughs> Um, and like they have no chemistry in this scene, which is like weird because again, in earlier seasons, like Bob and, um, uh, Tazia, Tazia yeah. had great chemistry. I don't, I don't think this is like on the actors and the performances alone. I, I really feel like this is just part of the writing and like where they have, where the characters have progressed in their stories now to mm-hmm. like backtread is like, it's not driving. Yeah. Um, and obviously, like, I love having Bellamy back on my screen, but, like, this haircut is a travesty. It's so bad. It's a travesty. What were you guys doing? Like, honestly, his hair did not look like that when we saw him again in, like, six years, you know? Like, like what were you doing? Bob Morley is beautiful. Beautiful. Like, it is. it takes a lot of work to make him look funny. So, like... Wow, good on you guys. Yeah, it was just, it was goofy looking. Um, and that also played into this, like, really awkward flirting situation. Right. It was just like, this what is, is happening? Echo, are you seriously, like, in this haircut? <laughs> like, how? Um, and, like, again, more seriously, I know they've all done bad things, some to each other, as Bellamy says. But it will always rankle me just a little bit that Bellamy kind of brushes aside Echo's guilt about Mount Weather, um, since Echo was directly responsible for Gina dying. Yes. And Gina was Bob's girlfriend, not Bob's, uh, Bellamy's girlfriend. Um, It just like, I think there's a way that this could have been addressed where it was like, you did a bad thing, you know, like Gina did not deserve to die, but I've also done bad things. And so I think together, you know, we can recognize that this was a bad thing, but you can do better. You know, you can do better going forward. We, like, and we, we, don't, can, we don't have to forgive this necessarily. Um, or maybe we could forgive, but not forget. You know, and it's also one of those we sort of can, things. because we've both committed atrocities, we can help each other yeah. grow and like grow together in that way. But I don't think it was addressed like that. No, um, it was like, it's fine. We've all done bad things. You just killed my girlfriend. It doesn't mean you're a bad person. <laughs> it just means that you're a murderer. <laughs> um, so... Bellamy calls Echo a shapeshifter, which I just, I love. I think this is such a great and apt description of Echo because, you know, we see she always adapts into whatever shape she needs to in order to survive. And I think, you know, beyond the fact that, like, I just love, this is like another example of Bellamy being an uber nerd. um, I just... Well, I also, I want to just, like, note you saying in order to survive, I actually don't think Echo's the survivor type. I think she adapts into whatever shape she needs to in order to fulfill a goal or purpose she's been given. Yeah. Um, I don't think it's ever, like, because we even saw when she was alone after Roan kind of let her go, she didn't really know what to do. She didn't have a purpose. She, you know, was, like, not necessarily playing all the survivor moves that you would expect of a survivor. I think you're talking about a survivor in a slightly different 
way than I am. I'm talking about surviving in the sense of like, you know, when you are taken captive and like indoctrinated, you have to get on board. You have to like let parts of yourself go in order to, in order to continue to live in this new situation. I believe that that was the case for her first kind of shapeshift. But I feel like after that, she shapeshifted into someone who's not, a survivor but who's like a follower like a second yeah um and everything that she does is to ensure the survival of her leader yeah no I really like that that's true um but aside from showing the whole Becco uh origin story yeah. of this I think that the actual point of this scene is to to convey to us what we already know which is that Echo's biggest weakness is her loyalty mm-hmm. um and the fact that her loyalty is so strong that it will convince her and make her do things that she knows deep down isn't the right choice but again is playing into like that survival of the leader the survival of the goal um and so I, I do feel like this is going to be the arc for Echo the rest of the season is her grappling with um, the, the negative sides of loyalty. And I think that's really inter- interesting that the show brought that up. Yeah, I totally agree. And I, I think that that alone justifies this scene being in this episode while we're like kind of joking about how bad it is and like how the weird the setup is. Like I really do like that. Um, arc and that um, that trajectory for Echo. And I like that the show might explore the idea that like loyalty is great, but blind loyalty is not. Yes, totally. And there is a difference. And, mm-hmm. lo- and Echo is a prime example of that. Yeah. I also want to touch on the fact that just before they kiss, Echo tells Bellamy like whatever this is between them, quote unquote, isn't real. And like, I think their feelings for each other are very, very real. It's true that they're exceptional circumstances have manufactured this new dynamic between them and it is very much a byproduct of being in space with five four other people for five plus years and like as soon as you put them in a different environment like who knows what's going to come of it which we've seen which we saw immediately like their whole dynamic changed the second they were put back on earth and so it's not to say that their feelings are not valid. It's just that the circumstances which make them work as a couple are very exceptional. They're exceptional and um, they only really seem to work in a vacuum. That's what I'm saying by um, exceptional. Yeah, yeah. I, I feel like had, and like taking Clark out of this entirely, but even if like Bellamy um, had been on Earth um, with Echo and they hadn't had to go into space and everything, I don't feel like it would have manifested in the same way. I think the only way that Bellamy was able to kind of come around with Echo was just because there were only, what, six of those, six people right. for six years and on the arc. it was like, you know, prolonged interaction. Mm-hmm. Like, and, forced interaction. And, and no one else to talk to. Yeah. So, yeah, exactly. Um, but I do, again, just feel like this hints to uh, Bellamy and Echo breaking up at the end or not being together. Um, even though I don't feel like we're going in the Bell arc direction, it just doesn't seem like... Echo can end up with Bellamy in a way that will satisfy this arc that she's going on, you know? I mean, I would have to agree with you. I really hope, I hope that's what we're doing. You know, we'll see. Yeah. 
I have heard several people complain that Octavia's grief should be a lot worse than Echo's because, you know, Bellamy's Octavia's brother. Um, but I just want to remind people that we have already seen Octavia grieve in the exact same way that Echo is now. And, and that she was, brought it up. And she brings it up. She mentions it. That is when Lincoln died. Um, and I really feel like this past decade where Octavia has been away from her brother, uh, she's had, you know, a really long time to, with Dioza as her therapist to kind of reflect on her past, on her past actions, um, and mature and grow. And I, I do feel like she's learned now to process her grief in a healthier way. That said, I don't actually think the show is doing a go good job showing her grief. Yeah. Um, they've kind of skipped over it, which feels very odd. Like, I feel like there's a way, again, that she could show a healthier grieving process by actually showing the grieving process. Absolutely. I mean, <laughs> I, I think to, to say that she's not grieving at all, which is basically what the show is showing us, is not accurate. That she's, like, already at the acceptance stage. Right. That doesn't make any sense. Not at all. But I do think that, like, they, I think they did this just as a comparison between her and Echo, but sure. it's just a little bit overkill. I mean, I think, I think they, they course corrected too much. You have to look now at the fact that Octavia, while Bellamy is obviously her family and she loves him deeply, she has another family now. Like totally. she has other people to like live for. Um, but uh, Echo, in the way that we've been talking about how she's really put all of her eggs in Bellamy's basket, you know, like he is like her purpose. He is her leader. Yeah. She'll do anything for him when he's gone. Even though she has other friends, I feel deep down, like she doesn't feel like she has other family, you know? Yep. I think like the loss of Bellamy for her represents the loss of that family that she created with them. And again, I know we were harping on this a lot. It's a, it's a loss of her own purpose. Yeah. And then, and when you're left unmoored like that then you have to start digging deep into asking yourself really hard questions like what do I want for myself mm -hmm. what do I need to work on myself how do I get those goals like, what do I need to change how do I become the person that I truly want to be and those are really hard really hard questions to ask yourself when you don't have the tools when you've never been given the tools to do anything like that. Mm -hmm. And so the loss of Bellamy is not just significant in the sense of she's losing her family and she's losing her purpose. She's losing, um, she's losing the distraction she needs in order to, to not self-reflect. Yeah. And that is really hard. Yeah. Um, and then just another thing in the scene that I am really, really glad they showed. They're really like calling up some of their past mistakes in this episode. Yeah, I like it a lot. Um, but Octavia mentions that she uh, is able to fully acknowledge how bad it was that she beat Bellamy back yeah. in season three. Yeah. Yeah, three. Um, and that is something that you and I have, you know, talked about many, many times. Many, Not many Not just times. that specific um, event, which was, you know, pretty damn bad, um, but just this idea, like, over and over that Octavia wasn't acknowledging the horrible things that she's done to her brother. Totally. And the fact that like a lot of her treatment of Bellamy was displaced anger and displaced frustration mm -hmm. from other aspects of her life. And she just used him as a punching bag, literally and metaphorically. Yeah. So I'm really, really glad here that they called this out. Um, and it's not as good as like Octavia being able to fully apologize to Bellamy. Maybe we'll see that. Maybe we won't. Yeah. But I feel like she's apologizing to us. To the viewers. Exactly. Which is exactly. very close. <laughs> I will take it. I also wanted to call out, there are a lot of, this is also an excellent scene. I, I, I also want to just like say again, like this is an excellent episode. The character scenes in this episode are very strong. Very good. Um, Octavia, you know, 
does something here that she never got herself or at least she never allowed herself to receive which is she hugs echo and she refuses to let her go and she hugs her until echo just breaks down sobbing and it's it's one of the rare moments on the show that we're like afforded the time to sit and ruminate in the pain and like feel the aftermath of trauma Mm -hmm. it's really powerful I loved this and it's Octavia doing what she wished someone could have done for her which was just like assure her that like this isn't your fault. You didn't yes, do this. You weren't responsible for this. And also just being there for somebody and mm-hmm. not trying to like tell them it's going to be okay or tell them that like you'll get through this. You're strong, blah, blah, blah. It's like, yes, feel your pain, but you're not alone. I'm here. Um, it's unfortunate that Echo is beyond the point of like recognizing that she has other people to, to lean on. Yeah. But I think it's equally important for Octavia to do this act of kindness and um, friendship. I mean, it is sad to me that Bellamy does seem to represent the death of her family because, like, again, we saw how great of a, of a relationship she had with the Mori, um, with all of the rest of the people who were in space. And I guess, you know, two of them are now dead, yeah. um, which is sad. But there's still, you know, people left that she cares about. But I think she's just brushed that aside in her grief. Um I will note that I don't feel personally like Octavia calling Echo her family here is fully earned, um, but it, it was beautiful. I, I think that what the show meant, but what wasn't quite conveyed is the fact that like, because Bellamy viewed Echo as family, Octavia would accept her as family as well. Yeah, I was just um, going to say that. <laughs> yeah, well, like, I think that's what they meant, but it didn't quite read translate, that way, yeah. translate that way totally. in the scene. No, that's so. exactly, I mean, like you had to do some extrapolation there. Yeah. But after you do the math, I think that's exactly what they were intending. Mm-hmm. For sure. Um, okay, let's switch gears and talk about the Hope Dioza scene because uh, there's a lot of good stuff in here too. So we see here that clo- clearly... <laughs> Hope is pissed. <laughs> She's basically worked 10 years to... 15 years. 15 years <laughs> to get her mom out. <laughs> and she epically failed. And is now locked up with her mom and is taking it out on her. <laughs> uh, little does she know, though, that her mom is a like certified therapist. So, like, even, even, even though she's, like, dealing with a lot of shit on her own, she can handle Hope. Yeah. Um... I also love that Hope calls Dev her father. I know. It's really sweet. I love it so much. And I wasn't ever sure. I mean, I knew that their relationship was kind of like father and daughter, but I wasn't sure like how they talked about their relationship. Yeah. But I love the idea that like she calls him her father so easily that it. I feel like she actually talked to him like he was her father before. Yeah. And I think it's like a father, both in the sense of like, this is someone who like, you know, took care of her when she was a little girl and raised her and all this stuff, but also was like, did a lot of the important work that a parent does Mm -hmm. loving her and giving her family. And like, it was beyond just the idea of like protecting and guarding her, but was also giving her the emotional and um, sensitive pieces of of fatherhood. And it it was, it was really sweet to hear her call that out. I think as far as Hope's concerned, especially because she doesn't quite see eye to eye with uh, Dioza about fighting. Yeah. um, The fact that Dev, you know, seems to um, value and respect her enough to teach her how to defend herself, I think really uh, is important to Hope. Absolutely. It is a significant piece of like somebody who trusts her Mm -hmm. in a way that like she, I don't think she thinks her mom does. Yeah. Again, we'll talk about later. Yeah. Flaws of the parent. (laughs) Um, I also love that Dioza tells Hope 
uh, dishes after she swears because it's both a moment for comic relief in a very, very tense scene, in a series of very tense scenes. Um, but I also think it highlights that Dioza still thinks of Hope as her little girl. Oh, absolutely, because she's been here for what, like a couple a of minute? months at the most? <laughs> yeah. I don't, I don't know. I don't know the exact time. Um, yeah, I think it's been a few months. But like, they, she was just telling Hope that she would do the dishes because she cursed like two months ago, you right. know? Exactly. And now Hope is 25 and that is just devastating. Yeah. So much lost time. Um, and I, obviously like I do realize that Dioza is essentially just upset in a scene that she's lost so much time with her daughter, but getting mad at Hope for coming to rescue her, it's just really a silly argument because um, Dioza was like, I was coming to rescue you. And if she'd been left up to her own devices, that, like, if she really did, you know, make it out of Bardo and go back to rescue Hope, mm -hmm. Hope would have been dead. Yeah, Because no. hundreds of years have passed on Skyring. So, like, the fact that she's getting angry at Hope about this when the alternative is just, like, Hope dying alone on Skyring, which is obviously what Dioza didn't want in an earlier episode, um, just feels a little ridiculous. Yeah. But I again, mean, it's displacement. It's displacement, and it's just emotions running really high. And the fact that I think, you know, if Hope was going to die alone on sanctum safe and like having a long life skyring or sorry skyring or being locked up for her rest of her life i think dioza still would have chosen skyring so i what would you choose for myself or for yeah, my child for yourself uh for your child i don't want them locked up in prison i don't want them locked up in prison but i think that there's always the opportunity for more to happen if you know you're locked up in a situation whereas like being alone your entire life yeah. and never getting any fulfilling relationships or anything beyond that. I mean, she didn't know about Dev, but Dev died. Yeah. Um, it's just like, that sounds like the worst thing that you could possibly condemn someone to, in yeah, my opinion. I mean, I guess so. I guess she's just thinking like she's going to get, you know, executed here. So yeah, but I, I feel like that's a little, it's like a little bit too much of an extrapolation because they didn't execute before. Like why, why would they be keeping you alive now? Well, I, if not again, for a purpose. I think, like, she's not, she's very upset. Of course, of course. Like, I <laughs> like, realize, again, she's very emotional. I realize all of this is, like, displaced frustration at their situation for yeah. both of them. Totally. Um, but I just want, I had to call out the logistics no, of all yeah, this. No, 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 of course. <laughs> uh, and, like, Dioza, like, so many parents, you know, we see here that she really just wanted Hope to be better than her, not to be her. And she's worried that Hope is now following in her footsteps and is becoming like more and more like Dioza every day. Um, and it's like an interesting interplay there because I think Hope does look up to her mother and wants to be like her. 100%. Um, Dioza is her hero and yeah. her role model and she wants to be her and her mother would want wants her to be anything but her. Yeah. Um, which is like classic parent-child <laughs> dynamic. <laughs> so funny. Oh, back to Sanctum. Oh my God, why? why? <laughs> so Nikki asks Nelson and the children of Gabriel to join the convicts. Amori tries to talk Nelson into coming to the reunification ceremony and reveals how similar her own backstory is to his. In Shade Russell's cell, the chess game is still going and Murphy and Shade Russell continue to figure each other out. Shade Russell with a bit more success than Murphy. Yeah, he's... He's really good at it. <laughs> um, okay, so just to kick things off, I just wanted to say I was a little surprised that Nelson shared the info that Russell, Kaylee, and Daniel are dead with Nikki. Like, I get that they're in, like, a middle, like a bit of a tenuous ally situation here, but, like, that just seems like very sensitive information, and she's a bit of a loose cannon. I was, yeah. I was surprised by this. <laughs> yeah, I think that Nelson 
just needed to talk about it. Well, <laughs> Especially since he finally clearly... Jackson. Like, he clearly hasn't told his own people about um, Daniel and Kaylee Prime, no, at I mean, least. I mean, like, that would cause a riot, so. Sure. So I'm just saying, like, I, I think, like, he saw Nikki as slightly sympathetic, um, especially since she's, like, recently lost someone, and Shade Russell, Shade, Russell, blah, 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 Shade Russell just manipulated him into talking to Nikki. You know what I mean? No, totally. I just, like, don't, I, it just threw me. It did throw me as well. I, I was a little surprised at that. Um, I also, I mean, Nikki, Nikki, she says here that there are no innocents at the end of the world. And like, it's a really cool line, but it's like such bullshit. It is. Because like, okay, if it were just like our main characters and that's who we were talking about, I'd be like, yeah, sure. Because to get to the end of the world, they've all had to do a lot of terrible things to survive. 100%. But like you're in a society with like a ton of children outside playing soccer and you're telling me that it doesn't matter if people die because right. none of them are innocent. That like there's no, there will be no collateral damage at all. It's like, that's eh. not true. That's blatantly untrue. And I also feel like Nelson would not believe that was true and so I just have a hard time well, lining I mean, things up. I mean he doesn't believe that's true because that's why he brought it up in the first place where he was like my people don't believe in killing innocents. Sure. Like, that's the whole point of him bringing this up. Like that argument does not hold water and I think it just speaks to his mindset that he is in such a dark place that yeah. he is very easily manipulated right now. Yeah. Um, again speaking of this I'm just I'm left wondering like what is Nelson's end game like does he is it what Nikki is saying like does he really just want control and to like split the spoils with them like that doesn't quite track with me is he just spiraling like what's happening with Nelson I don't mm-hmm. know I agree I mean we talked about this last episode I truly don't know what Nelson's purpose is now that the primes are dead and yeah. this gets called out you know it gets called out totally um but I just it's it, the whole this whole plot threat <laughs> I I I don't want to sound like a broken record but why but it's our podcast and we will yeah. say it like this is boring <laughs> it is it's it's like it's just it doesn't feel like we're going anywhere and it just takes up so much screen time yeah. when there are so much better things to focus on yeah. But anyway. it is what it is. <laughs> uh, I do. I have to call out that Nikki here tells Amori that she's glowing, which is just lending more credence to the idea that Amori is pregnant, um, which I don't love. But I will say that if she is pregnant, at least they're giving her a plot line that is like outside of her being pregnant. Yeah. Which and, is what's important. And they're like doing it before the pregnancy reveal. Yeah. So it's not tainted by yeah. that. Yeah. I agree. And I. I don't know. There's parts of me that's like, if Murphy's going to die, I like the idea of her having his baby to like have a piece of him mm-hmm. to live with, you know, later on. We'll see. Not- I, I, I mean, I think that's why it's really likely because I'm pretty sure Murphy will die. And given the fact that Murphy will die, I think that she will have his yeah. baby. I, just, I think that seems like a very like cliched, like tropey way classic, to do things. Yeah. So. And again, I think it's, it's not the, tro- the tropes itself are not bad. It's just the way that they're done. And so, it, you know, left remains to be seen (laughs) um so i know the reason here that they cover amori's hand and they've been covering amori's hand throughout most Most of the like seasons that she's been in um the reason is because they don't want to do the makeup for it every episode um it's a lot easier to just like throw on a glove but i just constantly feel like it undercuts amori's story because the whole point of Amori is that she's not ashamed of you know her hand of the way that she looks all she wants is to be respected 
with it yeah. like she doesn't want to be like viewed as um separate because of it right. uh, and that's what we saw of her in the city of light like she chose to keep um her hand the way it was just because everyone in this world you know already accepted her um and so the fact that they like continuously cover it has always just like hit me the wrong way totally i know um, i 100 percent agree with you i think it's it really does a disservice to her character and the way that they established her character at the very beginning yeah um which again, I realize that the reason they're doing it is because of like yeah, vaccine stuff. Don't, you know, that's that's the promise that you make is you're gonna do the makeup. So yeah. tough, tough luck, guys. <laughs> um, but I really, really, really love that Amori and Nelson finally got to discuss Amori's backstory and kind of tie it into what's happening with the Knolls because we got like hints of it. Um, two episodes ago, I think it was. Yeah. Uh, but I, I'm glad that that's like now fully out in the the open um and again is another reason why we did not need that jackson and maury scene totally i mean like this is a really amazing scene and i think it shows an emotional vulnerability that we very rarely see from amori and it's like she's opening up layers in order to connect with nelson um and i just i fully appreciate this and I especially like that this is something that was hinted upon in previous episodes that we are now building upon like that's a really great example of like character development and progress tracking throughout a season Mm -hmm. um as opposed to other things that they are not doing in this season like this is a an actual productive example um and again I just want to say like god damn it Louisa is so phenomenal she proves again and again that she's just like far more capable of holding her own as an actor and as a performer um in in any scene she's in than the show ever gives her to work with like seriously i just keep thinking underuse her so badly so badly they, they do her so dirty so honestly dirty. like this season they're you know doing a much better job but i just feel like i just think back over the seasons you know back when we saw her in season two and she was just so cool um and then she just kind of like became absorbed into Murphy, Murphy as like Murphy's well, girlfriend. It's so funny because I I was watching this episode and it is such a different performance and such a different side of Amori, but I could not help thinking about that episode where she God complex. Yeah. Where she tricks Clark. Yeah. Um yes, I was about to mention that too. Oh my god, that's because so it was the, the greatest And it's just again, it it's such she's such a multifaceted per- again, she's like a fully, fully formed character. Mm-hmm. She's a fully formed person. And I, I it, it was, it shows such a range of what Louisa can do that's all within the makeup of who Amori is. Yeah, I mean, that, that episode remains in my top 10, maybe even top, top five, five episodes. It's- I just, she was so great in that episode. And it just like whetted our appetites, but then never really gave us a main course for her. You know what I right. mean? <laughs> and I think this is like, we're getting a main course finally. Yeah, which well, is good. It's too late. It's too late. And I would have perhaps you know, expected or wanted different things for her um moving forward but I am intrigued with the way that she's handling her her newfound position um and I just hope that it's not gonna turn sour yeah totally um Um, oh go ahead oh I guess it is yeah go ahead (laughs) I was just gonna say let's switch gears and talk about the shade Russell stuff with Murphy um and just to point out like this entire sequence like this second round is like just a series of shade Russell taunting Murphy into getting him like more and more invested in the game and to win 
and to prove himself by winning right like he plays Murphy like a fiddle to just keep him there longer and like that's not obvious to anybody at this point yeah but like when you watch it a second time you're like (laughs) you are just goading him yeah like Walt Murphy calls out like oh you took 20 minutes just to make that move and you didn't even capture my castle like what are you doing like congratulations like you just figured out what Indrim figured out immediately like he's like constantly condescending to Murphy in order to get him to want to prove himself even more Mm -hmm. um Again, he's a master manipulator. He is. Uh, I have to, again, with our, like, Amori worship, um, when Shade Russell calls Amori Freak Draina, and he calls her this a couple of times, uh, you can really, like, see on Murphy's face how, like, much this, like, pisses him off. Yeah. Um, But outside of Murphy, like, I didn't quite realize the depth of my rage (laughs) that I would feel when he calls her Freak Draina. no, it's disgusting. Um, Like, I, like, was so angry. And I still, like, feel really angry. Like, how dare? (laughs) Yeah, I guess my question is, like, I do think Shade Russell, I I should say Shade Hatta, does have a lot of these, like, biases and prejudices against Freak Drainas. But I also feel like he probably doesn't care about it nearly as much as he cares about pissing off Murphy. Oh, that's true. And he's, like, clearly using this in order to taunt him. Well, I just think he doesn't give um, Amori and her, quote-unquote, Freak Draina status any credence. Like, yeah. Or any respect. Like, he, I think he just thinks that she's trash. Yeah. And, like, is easy to, like, throw away. Um, whereas, like, Murphy right now is a player that he needs to manipulate. Yeah. Um, and that is, you know, just infuriating. And I do like that Murphy calls out that Shade Russell probably hates women. Yeah. Um, because I think that's really clear in a lot of ways. Full-blown misogynist. A full-blown misogynist. Um, but it's also obvious that with Russell, Shade Russell's words about Amori, that he has never been in love and does not understand what love is. And like almost a very Voldemort Very. I was just going to say that. It's like he, he's almost like his whole life has been like, devoid or absent of love and he just like doesn't prioritize or care about it Mm -hmm. at all and doesn't understand why it's so powerful he's like completely empty and honestly like he is probably um a sociopath I think it's very likely I mean we we don't really know what kind of person Shade Russell was before he you know got murdered the first time around but I do feel like it's likely that he doesn't experience emotions in the same way as other people and that he really isn't concerned with anyone outside of himself yeah and and that he is able to like disconnect disassociate which allows him like a better sense of clarity and perspective Mm -hmm. in a lot of things because he has a lot more objectivity yeah um yeah I totally agree uh, we do learn a little bit more about Shade Hedda in this round of chess. And according to him, so again, take this with a grain of salt, the flame peeper, the flame keepers killed him because they were afraid of his ideas, just like they did with Lexa. And so my question is, what ideas? What were your ideas? <laughs> I think his ideas of world domination. Yeah, I'm going to say they were probably justified in that. <laughs> I'm I'm glad you brought that up because I really loved seeing Murphy throw Lexa in Shade Russell's face. And it just like every so often, I know the show uses Lexa's name quite a lot. Um, Sometimes it works for me. Sometimes it doesn't. But I do still really deeply miss Lexa. Like I think she, I mean, aside from the whole fandom aspect of it, I think she really made an impact um, in the show and what the show became. And she was, she was a fantastic character, but I I do want to call out that, Shade Russell said they killed Lexa because they were afraid of her ideas as well. And that is what should have happened in season three. Had we been podcasting at the time, you and I would have talked about like why Lexa's death didn't work um, and why they like were building it up 
one way and then it just kind of like fell by the wayside yeah you know like all the choices Lex were make was making and the the way that He's that like was causing very, political unrest very progressive fast changes mm-hmm. to like policy um it it was easily could have been turned into like a, a martyr situation yes. we me and you were very sure that Lexa would die just given the way that the whole storyline had been written yeah but we thought it would happen a different way we thought that like her people would have killed her and that would have kind of started a little bit of a revolution in that sense yeah um what ended up happening though was Clark's ideas were what scared people and that's why Titus tried to kill Clark and just missed and hit Lexa the stray bullet which you know is infamous um in so many ways um so I guess here this like didn't actually work for me what what Shade Russell was saying right. because like that is what should have happened that is not what actually that happened is full retcon <laughs> fully retconning yeah. um yeah Murphy tells Shade Russell um that he's neither a leader nor a follower but a rebel as Shade had a Shade Russell really calls it and I do think that this pegs true for Murphy's character throughout this series but Shade Russell points out that now in this current moment Murphy is not behaving like a rebel anymore it's like suddenly he has something to prove and also something to lose. Yeah. Um, and that is interesting. I think it's interesting to note that, like, while he, Murphy has been a rebel and an outsider for mo- most and if not all of this series, we are in the middle of turning the corner here. Mm-hmm. Or if not, we have, like, most recently turned a corner. Yeah. And um, we are seeing the next bit of John Murphy's character arc. And I think that this really calls it out and underlines it for us as the audience. Absolutely. Yeah. So moving on, Diosa tells Hope that she'll fight the disciples with Hope if Hope can take Diosa down first. But when they fight, Diosa wipes the floor with her and we get to see the depths of Hope's pain over losing her family at such a young age. In Octavia's and Echo's cell, Octavia is horrified to see that Echo has scarred herself like a true Asgata warrior. And Echo reveals that they're not prisoners, they're recruits. Echo, Octavia, Hope, and Dioza are all released on the condition that they'll fight in the Disciples' War. Yes. Okay, so first things first. This Hope-Dioza scene is perfection. I truly... It's everything I ever wanted. I mean, it's, like, hard to even pick episode to episode which Dioza scene is better because every time this actress and this character is in a scene the scene is automatically 20 times better you know like, like it like always moment in the show is the best yeah it's so funny because I'm like I often am talking about how like I wish we spent more time with our, our main group and our main characters and it's like you could technically say that Dioza is like a tertiary character who was introduced very late in the series I don't care. I'm obsessed with her and I only want to watch her all the time. Yeah, I think one thing that The 100 excels at is having introduced characters at a very late stage like Dioza, like Gabriel, um, but that we like already really love and we loved really quickly. You very, know? oh my God, yes. But especially Dioza. Like I I truly think that she's one of the greatest things to come out of the show. I mean, as you said last time, she's the best thing that happened in season five. I mean, easily. That's not, that's, that's easy to say. <laughs> She's the only good thing that yeah. happened in season five. <laughs> um, but I really love here that we see how Dioza's really reflected on her past actions and kind of come to terms with what she did and realize that the way that she went about things was the wrong way, you know? Yeah, I mean, she tells Hope, you know, doing the right thing the wrong way isn't doing the right thing, which I think is fascinating because we spent an entire series sort of parsing out 
the value placed on taking risks and making calculated choices um and how you know you can justify doing something if your intentions are pure and if it's to save others and like blah 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 blah. and she just just erases it all and just says let's just simplify it if you're doing the right thing the wrong way you're not doing the right thing and that's just like that's that's her personal um, that's her personal belief. That's obviously that's doesn't, the thesis. That she's doesn't reached. that doesn't apply to everybody or everything in this show. But I think it is fascinating that like our favorite character, who has possibly done the most atrocious things, has come to this thesis, and I really respect that. Yeah, you know, I I feel like it is an oversimplification of a lot of what this show um, has explored. Um, but I think that. It is a good way to put a lot of decisions into context. Um, do I think that it's necessarily like the right belief? I don't know. Yeah. I don't think it's the wrong belief I for don't sure. E- I don't even want to like descri- ascribe like a moral value yeah. to it. I just I think it is so interesting. This character has this view when we have talked about you know the complexity of this issue for most of the series. If not yeah, all of it. I think that sometimes. The, the only way that you can do the right thing is to do it the wrong way. Like sometimes there is no right way to right. do the right thing. Exactly. Um, and so you kind of have to weigh the the pros and cons or like the, you know, the moral weight to does is the right thing worth doing it the wrong way? You know, yeah. like, again, is the is the um, end worth the journey or what, what the is means. the is the, the end, end worth means? Exactly. Means. Thank you. Yeah. Um, and that's obviously something that continues to occupy our thoughts throughout this show. Yeah, and I think a lot of this is obviously wrapped up with Dio's guilt, which, again, is not, you know, you have to put that into consideration in the context of what she's saying, right? Because I think if you are able to process that guilt and understand that, like, this, you know, your intentions are one thing and your the pro- end product are another, mm-hmm. um, it, it, it makes a lot of sense that she would reach to this conclusion. Yeah. Um, I also just have to call out again. She's an amazing therapist. Like, even when they're fighting, verbally and physically, she's, like, so fully in control of herself and hope. I mean, she has a gift because, like, let's be honest, she didn't get her therapist license, but it's just, like, innate. <laughs> yeah, she was just born like this. She was born with her therapist license. Um, we do get a nice little mention of McCreary here. Yes. You know, great little little guy to bring up right there. Uh, and also, like, the, the idea that, like, Hope has to learn that her father is, like, a psychopath as they, I mean, like, like a medical you know, psychopath. Medically diagnosed. Yeah, I mean, like, he truly was <laughs> yes he was insane um I like the idea that like hope is the product of two very very I mean like at the time very bad people mm-hmm. um but is so full of love and um hope herself you know it's it's like good can come out of something very bad and I like this idea and the fact that like she has to reckon with like you know what like yeah you were not conceived under like the best circumstances, but that's okay because like we've made something really beautiful out of it. And that like, you know, your conception, your blood doesn't make you who you, who are. you are. And it's your, it's your choices. It is our choices. Yes, that is true. Um, Hope tells Dioza that she likes their chances with the four of them fighting. And by four of them, it's Dioza, Hope, Echo, and Octavia. Um, and Dioza tells her that she's acting like a child by saying that. And like, 
I get it. And that was like quite the the blowback to your daughter. Like that was a really good comeback. It was. But I I will say Diosa almost single-handedly got herself out of Bardo. So I don't disagree with Hope that I mean, like I, the four of them could do it. They could make an impact, but there are a lot of people on Bardo. I still think they could do it. Like, <laughs> literally, like they showed us that Dioza could have done it by herself. Yeah, I know. I just, I, I think like, you know, it's, it's never without risk. And I don't think she's risk losing. Sure. It's, it's true. It's not without risk. That is a, so, that's a good um, point. I, 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 I love this fight that they get into. Um, and obviously, like, Dioza is the ultimate badass. We all know this. She's incredible. She took out, like, you know, 50 men when she was pregnant or whatever. <laughs> I don't know. But it was really cool. It was very good. Um, but logically speaking, I just – she she would be so out of shape and out of practice after a decade of not fighting, whereas, like, Hope has literally been training for 15 years straight. Like, that's all she had to do with her life. So I don't know if I, like, fully believe this fight. <laughs> It's but I, I will say, I think that Hope is very much in this situation fighting with her emotions, and that is what will get you killed, you know? And that and that's what Dioz is able to put aside. Totally, and that's what I was just going to say, is I think what what Hope doesn't have that Dioza has in spades, even though she's out of practice, is is wisdom. Yeah. And, like, the, the, the um, understanding of how to fight without emotion. Yeah. Where Hope is just fighting blind basically yeah in a blind rage um which gets her into trouble yeah um so after dioza takes down hope she tells her that revenge is a game with no winners which is an incredible line i love this idea and i think it's something that dioza herself has had to learn over her lifetime of mistakes and very much is uh, is something that she's come to learn and like understand about herself mm-hmm. um and it's very much about you know processing your rage and your anger and putting it to better use than perpetuating a cycle of violence yeah which I love um and I think is really important for somebody who has done a lot of violence and misdeeds her whole life sure and I think that's gonna really come into play with maybe some other characters as well echo echo Uh, (laughs) yes I agree um and in a heartbreaking moment hope finally breaks down and tells Dioza they took my mommy away and I mean my god I just like instant crying like it gut gutted me I mean this was devastating it's just it's like the whole story is so sad yeah like I just, it's just sad it's just sad I mean by the end of this scene they both come to realize that they actually fear the same thing which is just losing each other again yeah and now they're back on the same page which is a really satisfying conclusion yeah. to this episode's arc like this was very cathartic and I loved it um yeah it was fantastic switching to something less I was cathartic say, and now to talk about Echo um clear it's very clear in this episode or in this scene um Echo has hit rock bottom like she thinks she has nothing left to lose and is acting accordingly yeah this is a lot <laughs> <Woof>. <laughs> Uh, so Echo says that as Gata warriors scar their faces to symbolize the pain is over, the wound is healed, that they can never forget. But it's ironic in the sense that Echo doing this is symbolizing the exact opposite. Um, her, the scars are, and the blood, um, is because she has so much pain and doesn't know what to do with it. And her trying to block it out is in fact, like, 
really just holding it in delaying you know the, pro- delaying the, the inevitable yeah and it's like exactly what you're saying it's like the scarring is it's sh- you shouldn't scar yourself until you have healed yeah and that can be like the final symbol of your entire healing process you're not supposed to do it when you're in stage one i mean to be fair you shouldn't be scarring no, yourself at no, all no, no, we do not we, we do, do not condone self-harm mutilation at all um no. but it is sad um And again, again, I don't condone self-harm, but in the sense of like Echo and her culture that they do this, it's sad that Echo is doing it now. She's scarring herself now when she was not allowed to actually do that and be a full part of Asgata before because she was a spy. Right. Um, And she had to be able to assimilate in other cultures. Right. So she was never able to like fully fit in with her own culture. And now she's, you know, taking up the mantle of an Asgata warrior when there is no more Asgata. Well, and I I also think it symbolizes the fact that she's reverting in a lot of ways to what being and as Gata did to her yeah you know emotionally and mentally yeah uh, she has evolved and learned so much more about herself and what the world has to offer and what about friendship and love and it was now since she's like had this very traumatic experience that she's reverted back to like her most elemental primal state which was this very like mission focused single purpose um part of her um identity um that allows her to block out everything else and that was when she was in Asgeta sure like I think that she learned a lot of lessons about herself when she was part of like Bellamy's family and I think that Bellamy and the rest of the group um were like they they really helped her kind of come into her own even though she never like fully has understood herself yeah. and hopefully will by the end of this season. Um, but it's, it's sad that the loss of Bellamy and, you know, and also some ways Harper and Monty has made her revert back to that state because it's almost like the loss of like Bellamy as her touchstone means that all of those lessons she learns have been lost as well. Exactly. It's exactly and right. And I hate that. It's sad. Um, and I do I do want to joke, though, that Octavia is watching Echo. And, like, I swear inside her mind she was thinking, like, is this how people looked at me when I was wearing my murder pony? Yeah, like, and my murder hood. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. Totally. She's like, God damn, no wonder people thought I was nuts. <laughs> yeah. She, um, I mean, Octavia also had a lot of uh, mental struggles to work yeah, through. Yeah, setbacks. And luckily, she has in many ways. So that's great for Octavia. Yeah. Luckily, she's kind of came through this series stronger and better. <laughs> As for everyone else, we'll see. It's possible, Echo. We'll see. <laughs> um, also, I think it's good. I mean, I think it's really interesting. And I'm glad they included the fact that Echo is able to recognize these recruitment tactics because it's not her first time being conditioned, indoctrinated into a new regime, right? And it's like... Because her of her past trauma, it's now being compounded with this, like, current situation, and she just acts so single-mindedly, and, like, she's on a mission. It's, mm-hmm. like, both the fact that, like, she can recognize what's happening because she's experienced it before, but because she's experienced it before is sort of triggering her at the same time. Yeah. And it's, like, both of these things are happening in, um, in tandem with each other. Yeah, I mean, like, Echo shapeshifts here into a disciple recruit but i i still think that this spy this is really the spy in her totally like i feel like her disguising herself as an asgata warrior is really like her trying to pretend to be something that she's not um in order to fool the disciples into thinking that she's on their side when really i do think she's ultimately out to gain more information about what the bardoans want um what their goals are so that she can take them down totally um, I 100% in revenge agree. in revenge absolutely 
So uh, that's, that's you know, her journey right now. Super fun. Don't love that journey for her, but that's what we're here well, for. Well, I do if it ultimately makes her a stronger and more self-aware and fulfilled person. That's true. Um, because, again, I, I mean, I think it's important to note that, like, while Bellamy is her touchstone and it is unfortunate that she loses all of those lessons and layers of herself that were associated with him, ultimately that's not useful if you need another person Absolutely. to have that um that capacity within yourself you you that's that's a crutch mm-hmm. and you need to be able to develop those things for yourself and so I think getting rid of him is unfortunate but ultimately necessary and oh so, I definitely think that getting rid of Bellamy was necessary yeah. for her growth so let's uh let's just track this and see where we go yeah that's true I can put a pin in it yeah. reserve my judgment and we'll we'll see what happens um before we move on though I did want to call out that the intercom mentions uh war pestilence famine and death Fun which if you want to go way 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 back to our third episode of the podcast um i think it was called the four horsemen uh it was all about second dawn and how it was built upon like the four horsemen of the apocalypse because the world was ending because the world was ending (laughs) like very subtle so like you know even if we didn't get the the bill cadigan reveal at the end of this episode um we do again get that hammered in that like this culture uh evolved from second dawn totally yeah it was a great little uh, easter egg yeah so Nelson ends up showing to, up to the ceremony, and Amori reunites him with his family. His mother is happy to see him, but his father rejects him and tries to kill him, so Nelson ends up stabbing his father instead. The convicts then attack the ceremony, and Nelson and the children of Gabriel join them. Elsewhere, Murphy figures out that Jade Hedda was just stalling to keep Murphy out of the reunification ceremony. So... I guess this is kind of tying into what I mentioned earlier, but I'm still just really not getting the the faithful and like the way that they worship because the way they treat Kaylee here is that Kaylee's word isn't good enough. Like they have to have Daniel here to um, solidify this ceremony. Mm-hmm. And on one hand, that feels extremely sexist. On the other hand, I'm also like, aren't they supposed to be your gods? Like they're either your gods who are infallible and their word is law yeah. or they're regular people who you're following. No, I a hundred percent agree with you. I think a lot of this doesn't quite add up. Um, but I do think it's a, that's a very, I, I think there's a lot of room for people to allow their personal grudges and personal associations to color the way that they accept different people. So mm-hmm. again, I do think there is a hierarchy within this God system. I think there's probably a lot of sexism at play here. Like you're saying, like why Daniel supersedes Kaylee, I don't know, but I think it has something to do with the fact that he probably is more aligned with Russell's laws and visions and rules then maybe Kaylee is deviating from that Mm -hmm. and so that's making her a bit suspicious to people or like less um palatable less palatable and so I think a lot of this has to do with it like on the scale how closely they are related and um tied to Russell Mm -hmm. and the farther deviation you take away from that the less likely less power you ultimately hold over your constituency yeah absolutely so I, but I do think like, it's a little strange how much they're allowed to question her mm-hmm. um, and they're, they're how comfortable they feel doing so publicly. Yeah. Um, I think that's strange. Uh, we learn from Nelson's mom uh, that his original name was Sachin, which is obviously named after our very own Sachin Sah- Sahil, who's uh, 
Jackson. Yeah. Uh, which is very cute. I love that they named him after that. It was very sweet. Um, it's And also, it's like, Sachin is just a wonderful human that, like, I'm glad that he got he got called out. Yeah. Um, it's very cute. Um, ironically, though, the name Sachin, we learn, means pure. And we know that Nelson was born a null, uh, which is just very interesting. It's and I, interesting. And in many ways, you could consider that pure. To, sure. Like, without the gene to um, create... Uh, night blood yeah i guess that's a null is that's a cool uh, interpretation i like that a lot and i just i think it's again meant to hammer home this idea that they think that you know their their nulls are imperfect impure which is obviously not true because they're they're humans they're human beings um i also have to say watching nelson initiate this hug with his father and then having his father like reject him was one of the hardest things i've ever had to watch it was (laughs) truly painful i i could barely watch it a second time it was devastating and i like honestly first of all when he stabbed him i was like yeah i get it man (laughs) i get it man but i also have a question which is did nelson come here in or in like did he plan on stabbing his father or like it was his plan to at least use the knife and like you know stab somebody or was this just pure impulse i think it was impulse i think i think he came here not knowing what to expect Mm -hmm. i think he brought a weapon to be safe, but yeah. I don't feel like he, like, intended to use it. Okay. Um, but it just seemed like things got out of hand, and then, like, before he even realized it, he was using yeah. it. Which I, again, I completely understand, and I probably would have done the same thing, to be honest. I, I agree that this was really, really difficult to watch, and it actually reminded me a lot of... Um, like a child who comes out as queer and like one parent accepts them and one rejects them. And like, yes, especially when you're calling him like an abomination and things like that, like, you know, just like um, putting a value judgment on like who that person is and like how they're born um, is just, you know, I, I think it, in a lot of ways just reminded me of like so many stories that you hear. Yeah, I know. I, th- I think that's really true. I th- love that connection. I think it was very much intentional. Like the writing and the mm-hmm. language that they use is so specific um, to so many stories we hear about children who come out to their parents that I don't think it was just an accident yeah. or a coincidence. And I, I appreciate that they put that in here because it's devastating. And yeah. like you should reckon with the idea that like these are your children. You bring them into the world you accept that responsibility and you should love them for whatever, no matter what, yeah. whoever they are. Yeah. Um, yeah. I hate, I hate everything about that. I hate, I hate it too. And like on one hand, like I feel bad for the father because like, again, he has been brainwashed his whole life. I feel no, nothing bad for him. Like, I, f- I feel, I feel bad for people who are like essentially like born and raised to believe in a specific idea. Um, and it obviously like when you have that kind of indoctrin- indoctrination at a young age, it's really hard to overcome that. Yeah. Um, especially sh- as quickly as they're being expected to right now. I mean, yeah. it's only been a few days no, since they that's discovered. That's a good point. But at the same time, I mean, obviously like in this situation, Nelson's the one who deserves the sympathy, not, not the parents. Yeah. Yeah. That's very true. Um, but switching gears from that terrible scene, we move into Nikki and her group of convicts coming in and, she punches Amori, and for that, Nikki needs to die. Like, truly, I will accept no other fate for Nikki but death. <laughs> I mean, she's going to die, so that's fine. I also, too, was just like, what the fuck, man? And what's, like, really frustrating to me, I get, like, Nikki's mad. Um, I also think this is, like, a bit of a displacement here. <laughs> because, like, Amori 
did the most dangerous job. And yes, she had night blood, but like had she stayed too long in the core, she too would have died. Yeah. Like her night blood wouldn't save her. It just protected her to an extent. Yeah. She definitely took the most risk um, out of everyone mm -hmm. who had um, adjusted blood. And so like how fucking dare Nikki, you, you know, disrespect that. I do not give Nikki the uh, mental prowess to make that distinction. So, um, and then, like, Nelson turns on Amori, you know, points a gun at her head, which, again, Almost like, pulls honestly, the fucking trigger. the disrespect of Amori from so many characters in this episode is just, like, really getting to me. It's not okay. I just, it's not okay. It's no. not okay. Uh, and, yes, Nelson, I think you're displacing your anger just, like, the teeniest bit. You just, think? like, the idiest bit. Yeah, this is a wee <laughs> bit. Also, like, I cannot believe you were about to shoot her in the head. Seriously. That was really extreme that's beyond that's beyond the fact especially when you know she's not a prime and like if nikki is talking you down like you know you've gone too far yeah nikki is the voice <laughs> of reason here i am slightly curious uh what would have happened if we'd gotten nikki and mccreary in the same room together i feel like that would have been a lot <laughs> yeah i mean like that's so funny because like I'm just like thank god they weren't in the same room together they would either be like opposing forces of chaos or just like a double force of united I don't chaos know. i feel like they would have ultimately taken one another out probably because like they are both so power hungry yeah. that like they couldn't stomach the other um but then finally i just have to say about this scene i do not care about the sanctum drama <laughs> I, I do not care and I just, I wish I did, but I don't. I know. I uh, completely agree with you. I'm glad that it serves a function of giving us more Amori content uh -huh. and more Amori development, but ultimately, like, it's not, ju it doesn't justify it that much. Yeah. You know? It's not enough. It's not justifying its existence. Correct. Amori could have very easily gone off with the others. Yeah, you know? and done something really cool and, like, you know, awesome in that way. I mean, surprisingly, one of the few things aside from Amori um, and in some extent Murphy's storyline that I'm loving here, um, Indra aside, who's not in this episode, Indra's fantastic, is Shade Hedda. I think Shade Hedda's brilliant this season. I love every scene that he's in. I think he's just really magnetic to, to watch. Yeah, J.R. Boren really brings it, um, which is a good segue into the next section of this, which is the Murphy and Shade Hedda um, sh ultimate showdown. Uh, there is a, another amazing transition here from like the tables in the ceremony room to the chessboard, which d does make a very overt but very interesting connection um, between like the chess game and the actual stakes that are being played out above them. Um, and again, just calling out like Lindsay Morgan's directorial style is very, very classy, very elegant and mm -hmm. well done. Um, so this Murphy and Shade had a section here. Finally, Murphy realizes that Shade had his plans um, have already taken effect. His plans were just to stall Murphy um, in order to ensure that the reunification ceremony would fail. And now that he's done that, it's too late. And Shade had has won. Yeah. And. Well done, Shade Hedda. Yeah, I well mean, done. Murphy, you got played. Yeah, sucker. <laughs> you got, you got played. suckered. <laughs> and that's really all you can say about that scene. You yeah. know, like, honestly, like, all of the um, Murphy and Shade Russell scenes, nothing really happened. They were just interesting to watch, you no, know? No, yeah, they're, it's, and it's because of the performances. Yeah. Uh, I don't think we have, like, any any kind of conclusion there was mm -hmm. no arc there yeah uh but it was fascinating to watch and very entertaining i do wonder if this is 
almost initiating an arc um, where you know Russell – so funny. What? Sorry, you can finish what you were going to say. But I was just about to say, I wonder if this is the Queen's Gambit. Like, I wonder if this is a much longer Queen's Gambit setup. Like, in what way? I don't know. But I was just thinking of, like, it was, like, the Queen's Gambit is about opening up and sacrificing a pawn. And I, I have no idea what that would look like. But I'm just curious if, like, this whole episode is, like, the beginning of a much longer game that he, Shade Hedda is playing. I mean, I definitely believe that Shade has got a, a much longer game. has like a much yeah. longer game in store. I don't see any I sacrifice was, here. But I was actually wondering if this was um, the beginning of an arc between Murphy and Shade Russell, um, and and perhaps like that is kind of the ultimate um, clashing is like Murphy, you know, coming into his own as perhaps potentially a hero, um, and taking out Shade Russell on the way you know yeah totally. uh, I, I don't know but I, I think that they just play off each other so well and because nothing really happened in this in this episode um it just feels like it's almost setting up us up for more you know yeah, no I 100% agree uh but let's finish out this episode for so sure. we flash back to Bardo where Gabriel's been working with the cypher team for three months suddenly the anomaly opens and Clark and her crew comes out weapons hot Gabriel tells them that Octavia and Echo are here, but Bellamy is dead. And Anders, thrilled that the key has delivered herself to their doorstep, goes up to level 13 to wake their shepherd, who turns out to be who else but Bill freaking Cadigan. All hail the Cadigan Queen. <laughs> we bow down to thee. We bow down to thee. I'm certainly not the only one who's been holding out for Cadigan all these years, but it does feel really good to finally have Cadigan on my screen after all of the theorizing that I've done that involved him. I am just, I cannot say this enough. I am so proud of you. Thank I you. am so happy for you. And I too am relishing in this with you. Okay. I just like, I'm just thrilled for you. Thanks. I, I really appreciate that. At um, least we got this. At least we got, th- like we probably aren't getting Bellarg, but hey, I got Cadigan. Yep. Yep. Still way down the list, <laughs> down from Bellark, but <laughs> Bellark is number one. Yeah, but the Cadigan, it, it was up there. Um, but before we talk about Cadigan, I want to talk about the scene uh, yeah, with Gabriel and Clark and them. So, so the so we find out first that Gabriel's been working here for three months, and he's talking to um, the other disciples. And apparently, the last thing they figured out on the anomaly was the ten-digit code to harness the power of the anomaly, which is confusing to me because like isn't that the first thing they would have had to figure out like that seems like the only thing they could have figured out then at this point yeah I I have the same question I I I feel like the wording here was really overly complicated and maybe misleading I think it was supposed to mean that they harnessed a way to like maybe travel to different places or something but like what else do they do well they can like suck people back and forth and they can like tag people and do a bunch of other things but I agree with you. That seems like the first the first thing you would have to discover. But how could they, like, suck people or tag people without having anywhere to send them? That's, you what, know, I'm, like, that's yeah. what I'm saying. Exactly. Like, it just, I, like, the whole thing is very strange. And I just think they worded it very badly, and I'm just going to pretend, like, they've, like, learned a f- variety of functions and... Especially because I thought that you had to um, put in different codes to get to different places. Yes, so, I, like, I didn't realize... 
or I don't really know what they're saying, but it sounds like they're saying that there's one code that you need to like be able to use yeah, the anomaly. Yeah, but we know that's not true. In any way. And yeah, I don't think that's true. I could be wrong. We don't know that's not true because it's very uncertain how the anomaly stone works. Well, but we can see like that in like the helmet view, like they tell you which stones to touch for different planets. That's true. That's a good point. So we know that's not true. Yeah. I don't know. I, I It's irrelevant. I don't, I don't know. I don't think it matters. I, I think we can just ignore it because I don't think it's actually like true um but gabriel does tell that this like random disciple guy that like this isn't science this is just trial and error and like gabriel like as a scientist you should know that science literally is just trial and error totally that is all science is. right and i guess i'm to his point he's like me he's like trying to say like you should make some like informed decisions like you shouldn't just be like randomly I mean, who's willy saying willy? That they're not i i don't know i i agree i i like if i were them i would like use a computer to input or to like output all of the different possible combinations and then just start going down yeah, the list you and have that's to science. do that yeah totally agree um so we know that this is it's been three months and is it just me or does gabe seem like he's been drinking a little bit of the disciples kool-aid you know what i oh, mean absolutely i he's I, a little bit conditioned at I this point i don't trust him anymore yeah um just because i don't again know what the disciples end goal is i do know that the disciples reunited him gabriel with his true love which is goad and so because of that, I'm like, I don't know if yeah. I can trust you outside of Goad. I, I really feel like, you know, he's so invested in unlocking the secrets of the anomaly um, that anything beyond that, I, I don't trust at this point. Like, I do trust that Gabriel has good intentions for everyone. Yes. Like, I don't think he has bad intentions against our friends. I just don't know um, if Gabriel's good intentions are actually going to be beneficial for our friends uh, in reality, you know, totally. But it also made me really curious to think about how the others have fared over the last three. Oh months. yeah, and what kind of training they're doing? Like, is it really just like fight training? And if so, that must mean that the final war is going to be physical, right? Well, Unless we, yeah, the training I, is mental. Yeah, training. I was just gonna say we don't know what the training looks like yet, and I don't want to make any assumptions because I truly have no idea. Yeah. Um, I did think it was a really nice touch that Raven is so concerned and immediately asks about the other's welfare. Uh, I do think it like speaks to her sort of just like, again, th being a little bit more conscientious about risk, um, and sacrifice and, mm -hmm. and, um, life, like uh, danger. Um, I just thought it was an, it was a nice touch. Yeah. I mean, I, I loved that the whole crew, um, you know, was here and they were together. And the fact that, you know, Raven, I guess Clark is really the one to speak first because she's really shocked to see Gabriel. Yeah. I don't know if Raven, has she even met Gabriel? She might've met him briefly. Yeah, I feel like we should just assume that while they were both in Sanctum that they had come paths, crossed paths. But like Clark obviously has the, the most connection out of all of them to Gabriel. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of like has her frozen in place while Raven is the one who has to like ask about their friends. Mm -hmm. um, but I also love that, you know, Clark for number one finds out that Bellamy's dead here, dead. quote unquote dead. Um, and like her, Eliza's face just falls and you can just like see her like world shattering um in a way that's really subtle but i think really beautiful mm -hmm. um i also really love though that all of clark's crew looks at her when they hear the bellamy's dead yeah um it is very similar to the way that like bellamy's crew looked to him when they uh heard that clark was alive yeah um it just again just 
reinforces this idea that like everyone around Clark and Bellamy know that they're like the most important person to each other you know 100% like and again it's it's not any kind of a prescription of like what type of relationship they have it's just like a significant it signifies that they are without a doubt each other's center of gravity yeah um, we learned, too, that Lindsay, as a director, wanted um, Eliza slash Clark finding out that Bellamy was dead to be much more dramatic. Um, she wanted Clark to, like, fall to her knees or, like, it to be in slow motion. Uh, and Jason was the one that had her pull it back. Um, and a lot of fans were really upset with this online. Mm -hmm. But I actually think that this feels much more accurate to Clark as a character. And it, it highlights the way that Clark is able to be vulnerable without, like, a lot of outward displays of emotion mm -hmm. you know um she's like a very um internal character and she internalizes everything and it also highlights the fact that clark at this point doesn't necessarily believe bellamy's dead like it's shocking to hear but she's not like accepting it as fact yet you totally. know i 100 percent agree with all of that and i i think the first time that i watched this i had a very similar reaction to the fans but then upon second viewing and after talking to you i'm i'm much more inclined to agree with what you what you interpreted as and i i agree i think this is just the very beginning of of clark's process with this information yeah um okay but that's that now let's get into the last scene the magnum opus if you will <laughs> <laughs> so we all knew the shepherd was bill cadigan like we knew it by this point right well, yes, we, we knew did. but like guys the shepherd is bill cadigan and he's in cryo on level 13 like the drama queen he's going to be and i cannot wait i cannot wait to get to know him because he seems like a super chill dude and also a cult leader and i'm just ready i'm ready for it I'm, again <laughs> i just keep having to like reiterate and it's not that i don't find all of this very interesting and fun to watch because i do but i don't enjoy this nearly as much as i enjoy watching you watch it um, <laughs> like this is the most fun is like watching you get to be right and like getting to be proved right is like the best thing and just like, watching you have fun is so fun it is me. the best thing um it's also wild that a thousand years has passed since the disciples got to bardo but for bill it's probably been like no more than five yeah like he's five years. he's like just been like literally chilling in cryo um for a thousand years <laughs> wild i'm into it though uh, i am into it and so is anders because anders is such a fanboy oh yeah he stands cadigan <laughs> so hard so hard <laughs> i am curious why did they wake up cadigan before and why was it recent enough that it was during anders lifetime i don't know but that was a really uh fascinating line and it seems like he like anders was very much like younger and in a yeah. less position because he's like oh yeah I, I recognize you yeah he was probably like a an initiate at that uh -huh. point um so that's really interesting and I want to know why maybe it could have been um the last time they harnessed the power of the anomaly or like figured out how to work the anomaly perhaps they woke him up then but that guy did say it was before he, he was, was born. born yeah um and i, I don't, don't believe know that he's any older than anders well, i think i think he is definitely younger than anders i just don't know how much younger yeah. than anders he was um so i'm not sure if the timelines line up for that but yeah i i, I i'm really curious and that's something that we're obviously going to find yes out. yes that was very much put there for a reason yeah um so as far as I'm concerned at this point, the war seems to have something to do with cracking the anomaly code. Yes. As, you know, like the code to do what? No idea. But I also feel like 
it's gotta have something to do with Becca and Allie. Totally. Um, again, what about them? No idea. Uh, and then just kind of wrapping this all up, as much as what I said earlier um, in the very first part of the episode, I, I really think it stands that, like, I am so excited to see Bill Cadigan, but most people will have no idea who Bill Cadigan is. Yes, and this goes back to what we were saying before. It was just, like, this show is no longer meant for a casual viewer. Yeah, and, this- like, even, like, the, um, Jason was worried about that. He'd mentioned, and that's why they put Bill Cadigan's name on the cryo chamber. But, like... If you don't know who Bill Cadigan is, like, what's that going to do? Right, you know? exactly. If you don't remember things from season four, four. and, like, <laughs> barely in season four. Barely. Like, a dribble <laughs> in season four. Right. And again, this is not for the ca- the casual or faint-hearted. So yeah. I, I just think it's ex- it's placing a lot of work on the viewer to do a lot of homework. Yeah, but luckily people can listen to our episode. And- yeah, totally. <laughs> That's why we're here. <laughs> Um, okay, so that was the episode. Let's get into some discussion points. Um, the title meetings in the episode, of obviously the episode is called The Queen's Gambit. And again, this is an opening chess move that Murphy uses while playing wrestle and also is very significant in the way that they are playing each other as much as they are playing chess. Um, we discussed several interpretations for what the metaphorical meaning could be in this episode. I don't know, again, if I think any of them are 100% like line up for me, but I feel a little bit better about it. Yeah, I really would like to hear from the writers what their intention was, and then we could be the judges to, like, whether that intention actually came across. It's very possible we're missing, like, some, like, very large obvious thing. Yeah, and I also wanted to shout out to to you guys, if you have any ideas. Yeah, if you have any different interpretations than we do. Please tweet or email us, because we would love to hear it. Um, I just am kind of at a loss. Yeah. What was your favorite line? Uh, it was hard because there were some great lines this episode but like let's be honest it wasn't hard my favorite line was call me bill (laughs) (laughs) which is great because i've been doing that already good old bill (laughs) best friend bill my bro bill bff bill (laughs) um so my favorite line was from dioza and it was doing the right thing the wrong way isn't doing the right thing because again i just think there's so much to to um explore with this line and it just is such a fascinating thing to insert into a show that is again so so much about the complexity of choices um and I just loved it I thought it was excellent what was your what was your favorite (laughs) scene Sarah Britt actually like legit asked me earlier what my favorite scene was I forgot (laughs) (laughs) and then she just gave me this look and I was like oh yeah obviously I know obviously obviously it's the revelation that Bill Cadigan is alive obviously (laughs) and mine is obviously the hope and Dioza's breakthrough scene yeah because it was fantastic (laughs) So the next episode is 708 Anaconda. In this episode, Clark confronts a new adversary who will Wonder obviously who be, be Bill freaking Cadigan. <laughs> and a surprising connection takes us back to the past and a nuclear apocalypse that destroyed the Earth. So a few things about this. This episode is going to be the backdoor pilot for the supposed prequel. Mm-hmm. We don't know yet whether or not that's been picked up, but this will kind of start that story. Um, number two, we discovered that two of the leads of the pilot are actually Bill Cadigan's children, which is very exciting to me. I love that. Yeah, I don't care about that. But well, it's I- just, it's like a fun way that like, we can carry on Bill Cadigan's legacy in a different show, even though I don't think it's going to have anything to do with Bill. I think he'll have already like left for Bardo at the end yes, of this totally. prequel episode, you know? Um. And, like, my one 
hope for this like deep down like I'm so glad that I was right that Bill Cadigan was alive I'm thrilled we get to see him but I would be even more excited if like my ultimate theory that Bill Cadigan's the one who released Allie was proven right <laughs> I don't know if it's true or not but I still think that would be a really great little twist um and is supported in many ways by the little that we've learned about Bill Cadigan to this point so that's my thing again as I have said before I really hope that I hope this is true for you I mean I won't be like upset if it's not but because I I already got Bill but it's just more fun when you're right yeah it is it's more (laughs) fun for both of us all right, guys, that's our episode. If you'd like to contact us, you can. You can email us at skycastcrew at gmail.com. That is S-K-A-I-C-A-S-T-K-R-U at gmail.com. You can also tweet at us at skycast, and you can tweet at us at our own Twitter accounts. I am at bperlman89. And I'm at Sarah R. McCabe. And that is our episode. So until next time, may we meet again. May we meet again, guys. Bye. Bye.